Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and I'm talking to you on episode 134 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and a variety of guests are going to be talking about Bernardo Bertolucci's 1972 mega-controversial, super-polarizing, legendary, and scandalous... (laughs) Last Tango in Paris. What else could it be, right? Uh, so, yeah, Last Tango in Paris, 1972. This was a Criterion Collection laser disc. I think it was back in the early 90s. And uh, I don't think they've really touched it ever since. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to be exploring all the different dimensions of this uh, really fascinating film. Uh, so much to be said, so much discourse that has been following this particular movie over the past five decades of, uh, of history. And uh, I'm very excited and, and really eager to welcome Stephanie Conti back to the podcast. Stephanie, welcome back to Criterion Reflections. It's so good I to talk to you again. I am thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to be talking about this movie because no one else will talk about it with me. You know, and, and honestly, this is a conversation that I think I've been looking forward to, literally, now, no exaggeration, for at least a couple of years, as, almost as long as I've gotten to know you, uh, you and your friend, uh, cousin, uh, BFF and podcast partner, Savannah Lanause, uh, you were guests of mine uh but what was it back in the was that back in the COVID era, right? In twenty twenty. Yeah, I think it was about yeah, it's probably three years ago. I want to say maybe two years. Right, you had uh, just started. You were a few episodes into the Purple Noon podcast that you and Savannah host, and uh, I had somehow connected with you online. I was talking about uh, you know films that uh, I wanted to talk about with women, and you were just a couple people that kind of popped up in my feed, and I said. You know, what was the film that we talked about, as a matter of fact? I, it's kind of We blank. actually did. It was, um, we were looking at three different feminist oh, short films. Right. It was that bundle that they put on the Criterion channel. And I, I knew that because of those films were really woman-centric, that I needed to get a female voice and was very blessed to have two female voices that got into it with me. And that's just really started what I think is a, a really good online friendship. Um, and we've, we've connected. I've been on your podcast. You've been on mm-hmm. mine. And, uh, but I also learned early on in our, in our, you know, kind of online relationship that this was a very favored film of yours. And I knew that someday I was going to get around to talking about the last tango in Paris because you get it's, to un- itch, itch the it brain. Is. It's that little brain worm that I have that is, I, cause it's always so funny. Cause whenever I say like, I have two favorite films and yeah. they are so different from each other. It's John Carpenter's the thing. And Last Tango in Paris, which I think are probably the two biggest different films on like the opposite sides of the world in terms of plot structure, everything like that. So usually people understand the thing. People don't understand Last Tango in Paris or just simply don't know anything about the film at all. Or they may know about it and have decided for a variety of reasons, some of which I think I can understand and agree with, even to a certain extent, they, they've canceled it. This is like, no, this is a yes. film that is not acceptable by today's standards. And because, and, and like I've already said, there's there's been all kinds of you know controversy and polarized discourse back and forth about the merits of this film or the you know the the inexcusable wretchedness of some of the things that happened in its making and what it represents and how it presents its story. And so, you know, to hear that you as a, as a young woman have really embraced this film is 
really fascinating to me. And I've never different. Well, right, right. <laughs> well, well, and we've never really explored it. I mean, we talked about Rocco and his brothers. That's another podcast uh, kind of conversation we've had where, you know, you, you get into some pretty meaty issues here about, mm-hmm. about gender relations, about violence, just about kind of, you know, even those kind of ultimate questions about life. Um, but I, I've kind of been reserving this because I want to really hear from you. And, and I, I think it's very significant as I get into this episode, I'm going to be doing a series of one-to-one conversations with a variety of other guests who have uh, expressed some interest in talking about this film. And uh, they're all guys, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and because of the very particular, you know, circumstances of this film, I think it's really, really essential that we have a woman's voice in here. And I not want to have you speak on behalf of all womanhood or anything <laughs> Yeah, like that. I don't, I don't think I'm a good representative <laughs> for every single woman who's ever seen this film. Right, right. But, uh, uh, but, but I could give an yeah. insight, an insight yeah. into, you know, my female brain as to mm-hmm. what makes this movie different from others. And because I don't, I don't know any other like women who know about, look, I really don't know anyone who likes this movie. Like, let's be completely, totally honest. Like, I don't know. And like people my age don't even know who Marlon Brando are. They don't know Maria Schneider. They don't know any of that. They don't know Criterion. They don't know any of that. So for like me, this has always been like one film that I've been kind of lucky without having to ever explain myself because majority of the time people don't know this film at all. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and I will say there, there's a, there's a substantial body of critics, commentators. I mean, I've, I've gone onto Letterboxd. I've gone onto IMDb. I've gone onto TikTok and other platforms where a lot of younger cinephiles have voiced their opinions. I mean, I've, I've seen video clips. It's like, I will never watch this movie. This is reprehensible. Yeah. This is trash. You know, just basically they want to bury this film. Mm-hmm. And, and even the Criterion Collection itself, has has not really picked it up. It, like they say, they did the DV, they did the the laser disc back in the early nineties. I don't think They've, they want to touch this film with a ten foot pole no. after that that kind of because uh, I think it was around during like the Me Too era. Oh um, sure. When you know a lot of films were being put on blast, and this was one of them. Um, so I could totally understand why they would not want to do it. Although I would love to see it because for me, the biggest thing I would love to see, I really would love to see, um, like behind the scenes that's the one thing i feel like is really missing from this film's history mm-hmm. like aside from stills there's not a lot of access to the behind the scenes of this film and if criterion could ever capture that like i think that would be so awesome and i i wonder if that would kind of change the narrative for some of this controversy and everything like that um and i of course have my own opinions about, about the controversies and we'll get into those in a little bit mm-hmm. um but so what is I, I guess you you take the the the, yeah. the head of the horns in this and you steer <laughs> this because I'm sure. I'm just going to be like uh, I guess you could say reactionary. Well, I don't want to say reactionary, but mm-hmm. I'm going to follow your lead with this podcast. Well, okay, I, and I will in turn very much give you free reign to take this where you <laughs> want to go. I mean, you know, but but certainly I'm the host and I'm the facilitator, so I, I recognize that's my responsibility and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I do want to follow up on that 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 basic thought. Maybe we'll return to it later on because 
you're right. The Criterion Collection. I mean, they've featured other films by Bernardo Bertolucci, mm-hmm. uh, a great director, a, a true you know titan of cinema. All of that. Uh, Marlon Brando. I mean, film history, significance, importance. You mean all the elements are there for them to say yes. Let's go ahead and give this film kind of the showcase that it deserves because it's a big one. It, it really is one of the major titles I consider of the year 1972, or even 73, which is when it hit kind of broader release. And maybe I'll just kind of start by going back to my own youthful (laughs) uh, first encounters with this film. I mean, I was born in 1961. So I was uh, 11 going on 12 when this film kind of hit the mainstream. And I was just kind of coming of age of, of that certain stage of life where I'm starting to recognize what's happening out there in the world. This is when I was starting to get into popular music and and movies and mm-hmm. and all of the stuff that was happening even in the news you know the, the the just the culture at large just kind of becoming aware of the bigger world out there and a film like last tango in paris just like the godfather in 1972 you see it on billboards you see it on theater marquees you hear it about talked about i mean that was just me i was just maybe this kind of precocious kid who was just really interested in what was happening what was generating the buzz out there and Last Tango in Paris was definitely one of them. It was an X-rated film. That in itself kind of has that allure of the forbidden fruit, you know? Yeah. I, I knew somewhat early on that Marlon Brando was kind of a big star. I hadn't really seen a lot of his movies, but I just knew that he was a big personality. Uh, the Godfather, obviously, I already mentioned that. This was his follow-up performance after The Godfather, which was yeah. a world-shaking film, you know? And it's like, what's Brando going to do next? And he had already established himself back to the 1950s as, like, the preeminent male actor of his time. Uh, influential, charismatic, a powerful presence, uh, but also this kind of kind of oddly conflicted anomaly he wasn't just a a robert redford like you know soup beautiful superstar he was a very complex person and if he took a job that meant something it it made a statement just the fact that brando agreed to be in the film even though the films themselves were often you know kind of difficult to assimilate obviously the godfather was a huge sort of career resurrection for him mm-hmm. after he had kind of done some smaller scale things and and had kind of followed the beat of his own drummer um and maybe left mainstream audiences behind but boy once the godfather hit and everybody went to see it and he just turned in this you know impeccable and for the ages performance now all of a sudden everybody's back on brando's tip it's like wow what's he going to do next and and again all the pieces are here bernardo bertolucci he had just done the conformist that was a big deal mm-hmm. um you know and and the fact that this was also at a time when like art cinema was kind of at the cultural vanguard you know a movie that kind of stretched the boundaries uh, censorship was loosening up there was just this whole kind of wide open field for what cinema could do and if a movie really kind of challenged and confronted and kind of expanded the boundaries of of kind of artistic expression wow that's just a must-see event if you're any kind of in tune with what's happening in the culture kind of person you got to see this movie. (laughs) And so that's kind of the reputation that this film had established in my mind. But I have to honestly say I had never gotten around to watching it until 
it kind of came up in my podcast queue. So I am really a, a late arriver to this film, even though it's been sort of taking up a little space in my brain for the last 50 years of my life. You obviously have a longer acquaintance with this film. So tell me, how, <laughs> how did you first get in touch with Last Tango in Paris? And uh, what did it mean to you at your first viewing? And how has it grown ever since? So... I was in high school, and keep in mind, I was born in 1998, so only a few years ago <laughs> when yeah, I first discovered. Yeah. Um, I really loved film, and I still, of course, do love film. And throughout high school, I went through, and I had such a immense hunger for film knowledge. Mm-hmm. I was just going through films like no other, and I would say that I, I, I'm trying to remember. First, it started, I went through a Marlon Brando renaissance that I haven't been able to shake in the past 10 years. He's been my favorite actor. He's been like always the one I praise the most. And it, it, I, it started definitely after I saw um, A Streetcar Named Desire. And I was so impressed with his performance in there. And I became obsessed. And of course, I'm a high schooler. So I thought this man is very attractive. So that also really speed ramped, you know, the progression into getting through his filmography. And it was because even like I could tell just from watching A Streetcar Named Desire that he stuck out so differently compared to actors from that time. Mm. You know, he was the first one to kind of mumble and not be super poised and perfect and everything. And it, it really, in terms of like, from learning how to um, direct and learning how to act and things like that. Like that's what attracted me to him and like his aura. And I think that's also why a lot of actors when they're trying to research, you know, who to look up to and stuff like that, that they will always find Brando along the way. So I went through his filmography and then I was in high school with strict parents. So I wasn't allowed to watch Last Tango in Paris. So Mm. then there was also this thing of, Last Tango in Paris had a a whole different allure to me because it was something that I wasn't able to watch because I wasn't 18 yet. And obviously my parents were the type of people to like watch films before. And my dad would be like, why do you want to see this film? So there was a huge, almost like childlike allure to the film from simply the fact that I couldn't watch it. And I think that also really created some deeper rooted connection in terms of the allure that this film had with me. Mm. So over time and stuff, I finally, I think I got it as a Christmas present. I think I got, when I turned 18, Last Tango in Paris on DVD from one of my parents. Um, and which Look, is not- Those <laughs> are very gracious and, and uh, <laughs> somewhat indulgent parents. That's that's pretty You know, amazing. it was yeah. because they were yeah. like, you know, you're, you're an adult now. You know, you can watch. And they had known, like, uh, they understood, obviously, it wasn't from a- pervish standpoint it was from the fact that like i had really wanted to see this film it was highly praised and everything like that and but it had a lot of controversy and i was so like interested in knowing more about it so i pretty much knew about last hango paris and i i saw some scenes and things like that on youtube before i had seen it Mm -hmm. and then when i had watched it it was an experience i'll say (laughs) because For me, what I like about movies, and I guess it's very selfish of me to say, but I like movies that feel like it takes creative directions that I would take. And I really love watching a movie where, um, because I I like writing, I like directing and all that stuff. So whenever I watched it, it was me going, I agree with everything that this director has done for this plot. 
And I, that last time I had that was when I was like 12 or 13 and I watched the thing. So it was a really big Mm. moment for me because I felt like my own style, like I love the score. The score is still one of my favorite scores of all time, Mm -hmm. but it it had this huge, huge allure to me and it just melded so right. Of course, I was weirded out by some of the scenes. Like there's no going about that. Like I'm, I'm, there's obviously there are moments where the allure stops during some specific scenes and you're just like, oh, okay, this is weird. Um, But watching this film, it was... It was one time where I've been hoping to watch a film, watch a film. This film was taken away from me, you know, for so many years and stuff. And now I finally watched it and it did live up to my expectations. Mm. So for me, that was really, really big. Um, but that's how I kind of got involved in it. And so um, ever since, it's just been one of those movies. It's not my comfort film by any mean. I don't just sit down where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to watch it. You know, <laughs> it's still yeah. it's maybe something I revisit every few years, but I can vividly remember everything about that film. And it's just something that like when I think about it and I imagine certain scenes, I'm like, oh, like it's so good. Um, so I will also preface I I didn't fully understand the controversy because mm. when I had first seen it, the controversy wasn't as big. Like it was controversial in the 70s, like from what I had seen because it was X-rated. It didn't become controversial of the whole crew and what's happened and Bernard, Bernardo Bertolucci's. Right. All of that didn't really happen until after I had fallen in love with the film. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. It was really weird because here was a movie that now I adored and love. And now people would be like, oh, the weird film with Brando from this. Now it turned a totally different ugly side where people now were saying like, if you I remember um what was it? Uh, Chris Evans, Captain America once posted, like, if you like this film, you're awful or some some weird tweet <laughs> like that. Yeah, and I right. remember me having the biggest crush on big uh, Chris Evans and going, no, what do I do? Because Chris <laughs> Evans doesn't like this film. Right, um, he, he's forcing you to renounce this thing that you yeah. bonded with for the sake of kind of virtue and falling in line with sort of the conventions of sort of contemporary morals and ethics, I suppose you could say. Right. Yeah. And so it was, it was such a weird, like I I can't even stress how it was, it was a weird experience to learn about the controversy, like this, this newer found controversy. Mm -hmm. Um, when I already clearly had like established a huge love for this film. Um, there's, it's, it, it was just so like, I already at this point, like I actually have, I have no idea if it's real or not. I have an ex-boyfriend who gave me an autograph image of Marlon Brando. Um, however, it does look like people have looked at that and be like, I think you should frame it. I think it might be. And he like says, an authentic autograph. Like you but, basically do the handwriting analysis to see if this is legit. Yeah, but I'm kind of afraid because I, I kind of like it being like the Schrodinger's cat of like, is it right. real? Is it not real? Um, right. And I just don't want to find out that it's not real. Like, let's be real. I just rather would secretly like to think that it's real than not real. But I have that. I, I have like Marlon Brando's face cast and everything like that. Um, there was like, I, I joke around saying I have his face, but someone took his face casting from The Godfather, poured out replicas and painted them so it looked like him. So I, I literally just have like a slab of plaster and concrete that is Marlon Brando's face. So here I am with all this little knickknacks and stuff, even yeah. pertaining to the film. And now I see this big controversy involving specifically the infamous butter scene. So it was right. really 
difficult. And being also a young adult trying to figure out how to navigate through that controversy and trying to learn and trying to like, uh, you know, like here was a movie that meant so much. Now it's being put on full blast and I'm feeling bad for liking it. Well, yeah, and especially again as a as a young woman, not that far removed from Maria Schneider's age and experience in life. I mean, she's an actor who took on. I mean, just think about the challenging situation she was in. She's what a twenty twenty two years old, I think. Is she's she was nineteen. She was nineteen during the filming of it, and for not only to do this film, but then like I think two years later, star side by side with Jack Nicholson before she even turned twenty five. Right, is like insane. So I always thought her career must have been like what like no one else the fact that she within already like three years without any like hollywood connections and stuff like that got to like be with such titan actors and Mm -hmm. also still like stand on her own near them so i always thought she was a very impressive actress and i would have loved to see her career take off more well and i think that's that's part of the sort of negative baggage is that this young woman was put into a situation where, you know, while she is formidable, she does hold her own. She even sort of pushes back against the Brando mystique and even against Bertolucci, who was a pretty big deal director at the time as well. Yeah. Uh, She's kind of like this small fry who's been elevated to the big, big leagues, you know, and, and like I say, she holds her own. And yet at the same time, She's put through an ordeal, you know, I mean, yeah. it's it's not like she's just, you know, out there doing her star turn. She's cute. She's sexy, blah, blah, blah. She is, you know, <laughs> she is being put through the ringer in an intense way that a lot of the young female actors of our, our own times have not. I mean, yeah, to be sitting there in the nude with Bar- Marlon Brando going through the scenes that you know we maybe we'll talk about in greater detail um and and also having some sort of stunts let's let's just say pulled on her that she wasn't expecting but you just got to improv and go with it and make it happen and keep your wits about you while the while the camera is running I mean, wow, it's almost unfathomable how she processed all of that. And I think she did say that there were some negative repercussions that she had to deal with later on because she was typecast as this kind of teasing femme fatale. You know, obviously, when you are that young and you're exposed to the level that she was, yeah, that's pretty much what every casting director is going to see you as going forward. Um, and, and this is also at a time where I think she really was more like on her own. She probably had an agent. She probably had some people around her, but it's not even like the industry nowadays where you've got this kind of whole insulation. She really was out there almost like as a free agent mm-hmm. having to navigate her way through this <laughs> pretty perilous territory. And again, this isn't just an actor. This isn't just a famous you know, name or face or anything like that. This is Marlon freaking Brando. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, uh, getting into some of my research and the making of this film and how kind of the whole project came together. Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci worked with um, Jean-Paul uh, Trontignan, you know, who's, 
who was a pretty formidable actor on his own. And he apparently has like screenplay credits and all of that, mm-hmm. but he's not Marlon Brando, you know, yeah. um, th- there is only one Marlon Brando. And, and I really believe that Brando's involvement in this film fundamentally changed everything about it. You know, Trontignan did a great job in, in like the, um, the Eric Romer films, obviously he'd worked with Bertolucci and the conformist, um, and Dominique Sanda was another kind of experienced actress who was originally, I mean, it was kind of going to be a conformist reunion in some ways mm-hmm. when the, when the project was first conceived, but then it just took on this whole nother dimension. So now you've got Brando who's more than twice the age of Maria Schneider and he is pressing himself to the limits. And we'll talk about Brando's performance as well, because it really is one for the ages and incredibly courageous in some ways but also you know he's he's um somewhat unconsciously streaming i think some of the you know sort of toxic masculinity uh assumptions of its era uh in in the way he portrays his character and 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 100 percent right the the you know the 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 things that happen in this film which again we'll get to in a minute um were you know, they they played differently in 1972, 73 than they do now, but they were very controversial for that time. I mean, just just seeing Marlon Brando, who had who had done all of these classic all timer performances throughout the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, to see that guy doing what he does in this movie is like absolutely mind-blowing you know you didn't see humphrey bogart doing that you didn't see spencer tracy doing that kind of stuff you didn't see john wayne doing that kind of stuff only marlon brando could take it to that next level (laughs) that he does here and and maintain his dignity that he's not just kind of sliding into some kind of goofy crazy exploitation phase so i I think well that came in like the 90s when he started you know (laughs) yeah i I don't know if you know even like superman in scary movie he was supposed to be in the original scary movie i didn't know that yeah so apparently he had health complications but he and Uh, Alyssa milano was supposed to be in a scene together and there's an old interview where she talks about it and like acting with him and stuff and just he couldn't finish the scene and everything. And I think it was they were going to do a spoof of The Exorcist and he was going to be like one of the priests. Oh, so um, but yeah, like it's probably like this is I think 70s Brando is like especially in Last Hangover Paris is like the best Brando um, yeah. because he was going through in his own life. It, it, it Like not only was he going through a film renaissance of his own career with uh, The Godfather and then Last Tango, but he also and then, you know, leading up to like Apocalypse Now and all things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in his life, like this was a huge, like it, the tone of his life changed in the seventies. I call myself a very, like an unofficial Brando historian just cause I've just read way too yeah, much, but in sure. like reality, yeah. like if you have ever, and I, I, if you have any interest in Brando, his biography is incredible. Just being able to get a glimpse in his mind. He was very smart and very, cultured love culture mm-hmm. love getting immersed mm-hmm. in culture and everything and probably in when he reflects his life in the 70s is one of the most fascinating things from you know sending Sachin little feather to the oscar to accept yep. the godfather oscar as well as recapping what he witnessed in terms of um native american um like i uh, i'm trying to think of the word um 
not therapies, but what's the 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 activism? Activism as well. Yeah, saying. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being yeah, right. in like seeing his firsthand, like you know, testament of like witnessing that and all stuff like that. Like it's such a unique book. And well, I and think his willingness to put his celebrity completely on the line. He's not just like taking fashionable, you know, uh, political stances for this. Oh, he was. You know, he was. He was not going with the flow. He was not going with the right. trend. He completely like this was the most shocking thing that that no one was expecting for him to pull at the Oscar because I don't think anyone had done anything like that up until that point. I think, was he the first one to refuse or have someone else like intentionally accept the Oscar on his behalf? I don't think there was anybody who ever did it quite to the same level he did. And that's another one of those youthful memories I have as of, you know, Marlon Brando kind of stiffing the Oscars and sending this woman up to make a protest. I mean, I, I remember the wounded knee protests and I remember yeah. just the whole coming to grips as even as a child of recognizing wow these these indians these native americans were really given the shaft by our own government it was kind of like this very you know emerging political consciousness on my own part saying you know i'd been taught all the you know the standard american history but it's like you Mm -hmm. know there's this kind of dark side to how the usa became what it is and at the, at the expense of many innocent people who were just wanting to live their lives, you know, but here comes the cavalry and here comes, you know, Uncle Sam and, and all of that. And, you know, obviously I've been learning that stuff more and more of those details in, in all the years ever since. But that was kind of one of those moments was like, why would this famous movie star want to give up his trophy acceptance and send this woman out there to speak on behalf of mistreated indians where i'm hearing about again the wounded knee protest mm-hmm. the occupation the military standoff and all of that those were like live things that were happening i, I would watch on the evening news you know after supper at night you know so yeah uh, there's brando out there kind of leading the charge and saying you know my fame and my celebrity i'm going to use that to try to make people aware of what's going on it's just and he had used it in the 50s and 60s as well too um there's actually like one thing i never knew was like a lot of protesters with like or protests with um like martin luther king jr there's so many pictures of marlon brando walking alongside martin luther king jr like it's insane like i was like huh like when i was reading the book like and he talks about um you know being a huge you know uh like a huge like as far as he could as an actor trying his best to be a, a proponent of the civil rights movement um, was so fascinating because I feel like that's never mentioned like everyone will always think Godfather involving Brando but never no one ever really thinks Brando as an activist even today with knowing his background and everything I think he's also kind of sadly his reputation in um with women <laughs> has kind of superseded uh, his reputation in activism, which, mm. you know, it, it, it is what it is, you know, Rita Moreno and all the, the drama and everything that happened. And he was a big man whore, plain, simple. He just went around a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, think- I mean, and he was a man of his times, you know, certainly. And, and I think again, some of that toxic masculinity that we've already kind of alluded to and just kind of being caught up in the era I mean, he was part of it. And I think that is, again, part of the complicated message and takeaways of Last Tango. So let's maybe let's get back into the film itself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you want to give us a synopsis? What is this movie about? Uh, I'll give you a chance to kind of sum it up in however long you want to take to just kind of 
orient us to what happens over the course of this film. So what I believe is the main gist of Last Tango in Paris, it is about a man named Paul um, struggling to come to terms with his wife's suicide. And he meets a woman along the way, uh, played by Maria Schneider, um, known as Jean. And he attempts to form some type of companionship with her while also struggling to come to terms with not only mourning his um, his wife who had passed by suicide, but also mourning the fact that the marriage and all the love and everything like that had already been long gone beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I think when we talk about like mas- toxic masculinity and like selecting the role of Paul, I really truly in my heart think that Brando's was one of the best. And I don't know, maybe it's because of the time and stuff. I feel like if a French or European actor had played the role of Paul, it would have been a very different character. I feel like the role of an American in France and having an American male um, being the center of this film is really a, I, I feel like it defines a lot of the character um, this American living in Paris who got married to a woman in Paris, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like if, you know, it might not be a huge proponent in it overall, but I feel like it's a small making him an American male. It adds something to it. I can't really say what, maybe it is just part of that, like American style toxic masculinity, or maybe it's just simply the fact that it's Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. you know, but I really feel like it adds a layer of depth to the character, Paul. And if, Overall, I think there's a huge, for me, in my preferences, like when I watch movies and stuff, I've always gravitated towards dark movies. I like, um, you know, movies that look at the brain, how a person thinks. I like psychological thrillers and stuff like that. And I really love the idea of being able to look through a man who's just lost his wife and struggling to deal with that and have it being reflected in his relationship with others, his mother-in-law, you know, uh, Maria Schneider's character. And I, I think it's such a great look into the psyche of, I, I, I don't want to say a typical male, right? <laughs> I don't want to say that, but right, like right. a struggling to f- have like, emotionally characteristic you know capabilities and stuff for men of that time i feel like it was such a unique look at that and and seeing a man emotionally struggle with those issues because i i don't feel like there's a lot of films at least from that decade and maybe earlier um as as far as that comes to mind that kind of touch on that same psychological male romance struggle no, I, I think that's very well said, and and there's so much packed into what you've just expressed here. <laughs> because you're right, you, you know, there's all. I mean, I've I just started this little kind of Google Doc where I'm just kind of writing down talking points. I've got sex, suicide, religion, <laughs> expat, uh, failure, youthful impulsivity, middle-aged melancholy, midlife crisis, yeah. dominance and submission. Uh, cinematic frivolity. I mean, the whole role that uh, Jean's uh, fiance plays, which is Jean Pierre Leo, the, the you know the f- famous star of, of um, Francois Truffaut's Four Hundred Blows, who had by this point grown into an adult and was kind of like a, a pretty prominent, I would say, kind of Nouvelle Vague character actor. Uh, when just like Brando, sort of epitomizes a certain style of masculinity. So does Leo, you know, he's, he's like this 
intelligent, urbane, but street savvy, smart ass, you know, guy yeah. who's who's out there kind of living the life and breaking the rules. Um, and and he plays uh, Jean's fiance, who's a uh, at least a wannabe filmmaker who is somewhat of a frivolous character because he's always framing his relationship with Jean as this documentary in process, you know? Yeah. And so there's this very meta quality to those moments. And and that's the thing, you know, Last Tango, so much centers around the relationship between Paul and Jean and what happens in the apartment and all of that. But there are all these other really weird bits in between all of that stuff that, to me, that was almost like the biggest surprise discovery in, in some ways because I didn't know about that stuff as much as I did know about what happens between the two central figures here. Yeah. But you know, but there's this whole list. But so, so you and and then and then you've got the character of Jean, who's like this young woman at an age when you know, kind of the the role of women and the ability for women to sort of choose their own destiny and not just be a housewife or a whore or whatever, you know, or, you know, those are, those are options that are just sort of opening up and being explored. And so you've got all of these different dynamics kind of being exchanged among the different key players here. And so, yeah, so you've got this young woman, you've got this older man who come together and, and at the same time, as I'm watching it as a man myself, it's like, okay, I can watch it sort of as an observer, but there definitely is a part of me that cannot relate to Paul's <laughs> character because yeah. I would never, ever, ever even remotely conceive of myself doing the things that he did because their their initial meeting between Paul and Jean is they are both looking at an apartment. Yeah. Paul is looking to get out of the situation that he's been in. His, his deceased wife, who has killed herself. I mean, you, you cannot be a survivor of suicide without going through this incredibly gut-wrenching, soul-searing reflection. What could I have done differently? What did I do that made this person's life so unlivable? And during it, a time where right. that wasn't as common as in today's oh, yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah. So right. it, yeah. it, it was even more damning at the fact that it was suicide, right. you know? How could he not see that as a reflection on himself and yeah. his whole reactivity toward it, uh, his, his, you know, kind of almost rejection or acting out. I, I really would say he's having a ma- major post-traumatic meltdown uh, in response to his wife's passing because he just does not have the tools to know how to process it. It, it really wasn't part of the vocabulary, whereas today now we have all kinds of resources it doesn't make the the loss and the grief any easier but there is a support system there is an understanding that you know suicide is not simply about you the survivor you, yeah. you, there's a part in it but it there's a there's a different cultural context around that when it happens but that was not the place and so he's got to deal with his own senses of inadequacy his failure and then there's the particulars of the story he's been a guy who's been kind of sponging off of his wife's, uh, his late wife's, you know, 
property, her, 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 her means, you know, she, she owns a hotel, mm-hmm. it's maybe a family inheritance. And he's just been sort of living off of that as an expat American, which again, has its own little thing. Like he's not really the breadwinner of the family, which is again, a very traditional you know, masculine role. Yeah. Maybe he's been falling short of that. So there's all of these messed up dynamics, all this psychological baggage that he's trying to sort out. And there's a pretty intense, epic confrontational scene with him and his wife's corpse. Another kind of mind blowing. Are you kidding me? Did they just go there? Yeah. <laughs> type of moment in a film that's just full of those types of, you know, wow, I can't believe what I just saw you know, when you sort of step back and think about it, uh, that's where the impact of this film really kind of landed some pretty heavy blows on its original viewers. And I think it's, it's still there to be seen if you give yourself the chance to encounter this film on its own terms. Yeah. And I feel like for like the time that this film came out and everything like that, I feel like one thing that I also immensely love about this film is the fact that everyone in this movie is deeply flawed <laughs> like oh yeah, yeah single yeah. person and I, look at, at the end of the day like i feel like that is not we're not all perfect people we're not all living in casablanca here's to looking <laughs> at you kid and everything i have happily ever after like at the end of the day like paul is a bad person and i like that like i like the mm-hmm. fact that he's a bad person because you can have really well-written characters like him who are just innate like even though they're going through something what he did he's he's bad because in reality if we take what he did from the get-go to maria it was attempted rape there was no consent there was no spoken consent or anything right. like that right. he just out of sheer miracle got lucky that it was somewhat consensual um, I still don't. She think didn't resist was, exactly. She yeah. didn't resist, but she and she wanted to pursue something, but mm-hmm. it was not a sure, enthusiastic yes consent. I've given time to think about this, um, and so there he, were there were no words spoken other than "Are you looking at this place? Are you going to get it?" Or that, you know? literally that, and then next yeah. thing you know, like he's undressing her and and sleeping with her. Well, and, well, and he's picking her up, hoisting her over her shoulder, his shoulder. Yeah pressing her up against the wall. I mean, this is, there's no warm fuzzies here. This is pretty animalistic stuff. Here. Oh yeah. Like it, it, it's, there's no romance between them. And even the, the, the sex that they have throughout the entire movie is nothing but animalistic. It, there's no, there's, there's for at least Maria's end, there is some type of desire to be there, but it's just nothing but attraction. And that as far as it goes, Mm-hmm. Um, but also like with Maria's character, she's fought in a way where literally she has a fiance who mm-hmm. is the star in his eyes. He is this, or she's the star in his eyes. She, he's yeah. literally looks at her and says, if I kiss you, it's cinema and all that cheesiness and everything like that. Right. And yeah. just absolutely just wants to be with her and like, and, and, you know, make his film like, but puts her on a pedestal. And here is a 40 year old man with a receding hairline going, I don't want to know you. I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know anything. And the fact that she gets keeps getting pulled into that is crazy. Like I think it's so flawed, but it, it does happen. Like I've seen it happen to people my age and stuff and, growing and up. That's, and that's really 
really valuable for me to hear Stephanie because I, I I do feel like that's some of the criticisms I've seen is like this relationship is just completely unrealistic. This is Bertolucci's twisted dark fantasy, you know. No, but and, as, and, as someone yeah. who I I you know younger like and I look back and reflect now and go, oh my god, thank God I never got with this person. But yeah. like growing up and things like that, like for some reason it's just very natural, at least for most girls, um, to when an older person hits on them if they're somewhat attractive and things like that or even just okay looking it's kind of complimentative um fortunately now a lot of people are realizing like hey no and like really really like even saying like even if it's legal it's not right or if it's okay and stuff like um or like it's not necessarily the best circumstance and so you know growing up and it's funny because after seeing this film i still tried as you know a young adult pursuing relationships like this relationships mm-hmm. like this not necessarily uh janine and paul's or john's and paul's relationship um alerted me but being with a much older person did growing up um and so now i sit here and i look back and i'm like what was i thinking like even five right. years ago, I'm like, dude, what was I thinking? Like, thank well, God I, I never yeah. was successful in that journey, you know? Well, it's, it's like this launch into adulthood and sophistication. I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's a different angle, but it's like a guy with money. You know, you, you can yeah. marry into or get into a relationship with a guy with a lot of money. And all of a sudden, boom, all of these nice things of life, all these material uh, opportunities are are there for you because you've gone along with it. And it's like, wow, now all of a sudden you didn't really have to work and earn it yourself. You just kind of it landed in your lap. Well, yeah. without, without the money side of it, you still get the sophistication and, and uh, you know, sort of that, that boost of, of adult life and maturity and taste and experience and wisdom and all that. And all right, if you're, if you're a young, you know, right on the verge of impressionable, impressionable. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's the case that could be made is that yeah she is engaged she is with this jean-pierre leod this this wannabe filmmaker but it's a little bit claustrophobic he's a little bit too fawning he's a little bit too of an adoring puppy dog and she likes the there's something in enticing about this this guy who's kind of dominant and in control and telling her what's what and yeah. and that's where she's like whoa this this is a this is a big timer this is a guy who's really going to tell me how it really is you know versus this this boy who's all gaga over me and you sort of take that for granted i i can see that from a younger woman's point of view even though you're right uh, and i think that, again that's another reason this film has been sort of repudiated is like Look, don't give in to the Marlon Brando's predatory behaviors or the yeah. Paul, those kind of guys who are out there looking to take advantage of impressionable young women uh, who will play with them and then cast them aside as soon as the next thing comes along or as soon as they get bored. Exactly. And, and, and there is there is wisdom and truth in all of that. You know, we, we see that happen. But this film really is a snapshot of a time when some of those boundaries had maybe not been established or because of the sexual revolution and the cultural upheaval of the times, uh, maybe those those boundaries were even 
set aside, whereas that maybe they had been more established in, in years past, you know, where you don't get with a woman half your age, it's not the proper, decent thing to do. And this wasn't and, a time when know. people will start looking at Paul and going, what are you doing, dude? Like, she's right. so young. This is a right. time where probably if he had brought someone like Jean to a bar, he would have gotten pats on the back. Oh, well, I mean, you know, let's, let's face it. You know, Playboy magazine featured Maria Schneider in a layout, Marlon Brando, like that's the man, man. He's, he's getting with chicks half his age. I mean, there was absolutely a celebration of what a stud he was to be able to, you know, continue pulling in the, the young, the young gals. I mean, that, that is a stereotype that, uh, I'm sure this movie fed into and played to, and I've said this about some of these art house directors. They definitely sometimes like to have it both ways. They they are about women and empowerment and liberation and all of that, but they also know what sells and what kind of uh, caters to a particular portion of the audience. And let, let's let's face it: the last Tango in Paris made a lot of money because of people's you know prurient curiosity to see oh, what was going to happen sure. on the screen but in terms Even of like this when, isn't really a super sexy movie in terms of that yeah you know like it it, it right? just has some weird <laughs> scenes in it and things like that unconventional scenes that you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. um like when you think of like oh this movie has a sex scene you don't think of those two scenes you know no. or like some type of reenactment of those two scenes but i think also one of the reasons why like Last Tango in Paris brings in that allure of like, oh, this is going to be a sex film and stuff like that. And often like people end up being disappointed in the sexy part of it because it's it's right. really not like in my opinion, I don't think it's sexy at all. Like it's no. and I think when you start like it's got such this good balance between character development, even like mm-hmm. with the flaws and everything of both characters. One thing that I did not find out until probably two years ago was I did not know that Agnes Varda is technically a writer for this film. And <laughs> She's I think, right there in the opening credits. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. And I, I yeah. like, I, it took me so like so long to be like, <laughs> and I realized that she must've had like such, of course it's Agnes Varda. She must've had some, some influence over the way that um, our female lead was structure. I mean, how mm-hmm. could you not like, how could you implore um, or employ Agnes Varda and not ask for her, you know, opinion development and things like that when trying to construct a character like Jean. Right. But Agnes Varda knew what was up. I mean, she was right there in the heart of all of the tumult of the 1960s. And and so so many of her films from that era really get right to the heart of these issues of, of male and female relationships, whether that's married, whether that's, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, whether that's some other kind of you know triangles or or other kinds of uh situations she was very attuned especially into the kind of european and parisian uh ethos of of that time which again this is a film specifically about paris and about mm-hmm. the culture of the of of that of that particular place and time so yeah yeah i i you know tell me some other aspects like what are some other um dimensions of this film that really caused it to just bond with you and 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 or for for you to bond with it in such a profound way um for me so the intro like immediately you see that very and for at the time someone who had never seen francis bacon's work um it just starts with this like oh well like you're you're just kind of the tone of the film and how it begins is very off throwing right Mm -hmm. because you just see this one very very unique uh painting done by francis bacon and Mm -hmm. then 
jazz music. And it's, yeah. it, in the I, the music in this film, like I said, is one of my favorites of all time by Gato Barberi. And the mm-hmm. idea of setting a film this complex to something, a, a category of music that's also complex like jazz, I thought was brilliant. I thought it really did such a unique job in playing these romance undertones that the film was trying to have but of course overall we really don't get because that's not the plot of the film and that's not what what these two characters were meant here for it's almost like you know everything was perfect we're in the city of paris we have the jazz music the romance music and all stuff like that and we still have two characters that are 100 percent incompatible with each Mm -hmm. other so i really liked how that reflected in terms of creating this perfect scene and even like the imagery of them like holding each other while they're nude and stuff and still having all the markers for a perfect love story and just once again having those two completely incompatible characters i love the idea of that yeah yeah it it is a love story for sure but it's not one that's built to last (laughs) yeah and i i don't think there was never any potential for this to be a kind of a long-term relationship yeah and it's more like a story of like reflection before both Mm -hmm. characters you know Mm -hmm. paul coming to grasp with the fact that his wife is gone and that he really never understood his wife demonstrated in in an iconic scene where he's over his wife's body and everything like that and just his emotions are all over the place cursing her out going why did you do it and stuff which i like i think brando's performance in here is also top notch compared to his other films and and so incredibly like brutal and incisive he wasn't just lamenting he wasn't just mourning he wasn't just you know exclaiming his grief he's really getting deep and personal you you really get into the backstory of this you know, very intense relationship that they had and kind of his confessions, his accusations. And it of course is completely one-sided because she's there dead, unable to respond. So you never really know her side of the story. But I think it's also so reflective of how she's been Mm -hmm. during their entire relationship or at least a good chunk of it, how Mm -hmm. he never got the answers or he never could figure her out now. And then now feeling like it it, it doesn't matter. Like it's still the same. And he has that great line of like, even if a man is like with his wife for 200 years, he might comprehend the universe, but he'll never comprehend his wife. Dude, I know these, (laughs) I know the dialogue like second to none. I love it. Yeah, yeah. But, well, and and the fact is that, that that while there may be some truth to that, it's also sort of the ultimate cop cop out, right? What does woman? Oh, want, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's the it's the man basically throwing up his hands, saying, "I could never figure out what women want." It's like, well, you know what? Maybe you let some of that toxicity go. Maybe you become a more warmer, emotionally present, emotionally present person, and and you know, stop thinking of yourself as like I'm the man. I'm the privileged one. I, Meanwhile, I, in reality, I, he yeah, didn't, I, like you said before, he didn't demonstrate those roles. Like he, right. yeah, he was right. in um, conjunction, like partnership with her in terms of like running this hotel, but it really was her bringing home everything. So yeah. on top of, so like he had like the life. So he had the life. He got to move to Europe. He got to experience oh, yeah. life in France. And then he gets with this woman who has right. a hotel and yeah, all Yeah, not just this, in I France, just, but like right there in Paris, right? Right in the heart of the action. And I mean, all he just, had to is, do right. was be emotionally present. And he still couldn't even do that. You know, like that's like the bare minimum of what he could yeah. have give. And and it was never clearly by the interactions that he had with her and the fact that she ended up like cheating and having like even with like someone right next door, like just really shows how 
emotionally gone and withdrawn he was Mm -hmm. away from her, whether or not he realized it. Yeah. And I think even though you might not think of Paul as the archetypal man, because his situation is, is so particular and so really unique in some ways, there are some very basic masculine tendencies on display here you know and 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 even if you even if you buy into the idea that this is sort of a a projection of Bertolucci slash Brando kind of doing their masculine thing to sort of the utmost I I mean I think that's a pretty valid read and even a criticism uh, a negative criticism of the film because they are in some ways even though they're they're functioning pretty brilliantly as artists they're they're almost coming at this out of some blind spots as well and that's where some of the you know the the post me too critique and even some of the rejection of the film because it doesn't acknowledge some of those things i you know i i certainly can validate and understand anybody who just wants to hate this film and dismiss it and just say, you know what, I'm going to walk on by and I'm going to focus on other things. And I'm not I don't gonna... judge because the headlines, yeah. the way that it's presented, and I guess, do you want to get into the, the nitty gritty of the controversy now? And Sure, let's do it. Because yeah. I do feel like there's a huge loss in translation. Um, one of the reasons why I also really love this movie is because it has been the biggest learning curve in being a director. When mm. you want something so real from your characters, you end up completely draining your actors. And that, I think, is a huge case for Last Tango in Paris, where as you know, we see glimpses of Paul recollecting his life and Jean and everything like that, um, a lot of what Brando says is actually just like straight from his book before he ever even wrote it. A lot of it was ad-libbed, you know, the, and I I think that is the consequence of wanting real, right? You end up losing the dissection between your characters and your actor. So maybe this is Brando's best performance because he's just being himself in mm-hmm. most circumstances, right? So yeah. with um, Last Tango Paris and, and the big controversy is the fact that there was a headline that came out several years ago that Last Tango in Paris needed to be canceled because the infamous butter scene was a rape. Um, now teetering along that and stuff, I don't ever condone Bertolucci's actions for this film. He made a gorgeous film at the expense of his actor's sanity. Both Brando and Maria Schneider have claimed immensely that they had a lot of struggles dealing with the aftermath of this film. And that's what I mean by like being, trying to create something so real, you put your actors in harm's way. So emotionally, emotionally and mentally. So with this scene, there was an interview shortly that Maria Schneider did in the mid 2000s, um, shortly before she passed away, where she exclaimed that she felt in the scene a, a bit emotionally raped um, by Brando and Bertolucci because the butter scene she was not told about beforehand. Brando right. was debriefed, she was not. So, although it's not a and we got to think in terms of a film set, if this was a rape, there's hundreds, usually hundreds, maybe even for a movie like this, that could have been smaller, at least 50 to 100 people standing around all actors on this set, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think in my heart of hearts, if it was truly something like rape, I think it was an immensely a, a breach of trust between right. this actress and the director, but I would not classify it as rape because she never even classified it as rape. 
So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like the the physical act, but there, yeah, stimulation. The it's trust. still it's still <laughs> right. rough, you know. And I'll still oh, never yeah. discredit well, Maria and, for her feelings and how she felt with this. Well, but, and that's the reason that I don't think they disclosed what they wanted to do is that they wanted her reactions to be real. genuine, they, and that's they, that's where right. the the fault of, and this is where directors need to learn the separation between getting the best out of your actor and then putting them in circumstances that you know is a, a breach of trust and a breach right. of boundaries. Especially since she's a 19, 20 year old woman who's being put through that, 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 that this isn't just a job, you know, well, she got her paycheck. She signed on to take the, you know, to take the role. Yeah. No, this is something that has deeper implications that will travel with her throughout her career and also throughout her personal life, she has to live with the knowledge and the experience that that happened to me, not only that it happened to me, but that it was captured on film. Yeah, and it's the and thing that she became known for. Right, right. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, you bring up Last Tango in Paris, there's going to be some yokel out there. It's like, oh, the butter scene, get the butter. You know? Yeah. It's like, oh, gosh, you know. And, and, and you know, I, I can only, I, well, no, I cannot imagine what that would be like living with that as your personal experience and your infamy uh, on a global scale that uh, you walk into any public situation where you're identified as Maria Schneider, you know, people are automatically going there uh, just because that's, that's where their imagination takes them. There's, there's no way of undoing that or saying, you know what, we're just going to sort of give you a free pass on that or let bygones be bygones. So yeah, I, 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 I validate those types of criticisms, you know, as a student of film and of history and of popular culture, I feel like this, this movie is too big to just dismiss and write off automatically that way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if it's not part of your experience, if you're a younger person and you just feel like this is where I'm going to draw the boundary. Yeah. I totally respect that and recognize that that's that's a very valid you know same here like i know that this movie is in every way shape and form not for everyone and it's just and i will never go like you haven't seen my thing on paris oh my god like this i know this is not one of those movies for me it was a movie that i saw at the right time at the right place that had a Mm -hmm. a big impact for me but i know it's not going to have that impact for most people and i could totally understand like even if i say like oh but it wasn't really rape and stuff that doesn't mean that someone will should still watch this movie at the end of the day it's it's very sad in that a, a young actress was you know abused by her director this way and if someone simply did not want to watch it for that reason that is 100 valid like you were saying um but i don't think claiming that brando is a rapist is the answer to this problem um i think it needs to be you know bertolucci did deserve flack he he crossed a boundary and he in one of his later interviews you know said that he caused a lot of turmoil in maria schneider's life and a a lot of big complexes because this is what she became known for um so you know i I think the criticism is valid towards bertolucci and even towards brando because brando you know he, he still had every right to say no against it but in terms of this, there's a huge rape in it and, and things like that. And it was real. I think that's when it starts crossing the line. And we're overall like 
we're losing when we say that this is just rape. We're losing the big, in my opinion, the big picture. The big picture is that we had a director poorly mistreat an actress, not just the fact that, oh, it's rape and that's it. Like it's it. She was deeply uncomfortable. And I think that's what needs to be taken from this movie as a huge learning curve. You can't put your actors in position like this. Well, and this was a time when, you know, the auteur directors in particular were sort of like viewed as these demigods who could not necessarily do no wrong, but they were almost celebrated for their their fearlessness, their recklessness, their untouchable, their just you know, like for broke, you know, they're they're breaking the boundaries and and expanding the range of what art can do. You know, Polanski kind of finds himself in the same situation. Yeah. It's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had and and we can open up and maybe get into some other time. But this this was hardly an uncommon. I mean, you know, not that it was happening all over the place all the time, but Bertolucci was right there at the vanguard of, of this type of filmmaking. Yeah. And there's, there's so many, so many interesting, like little tidbits about this film that I've always found fascinating. And the more and more time goes on, the more I find out some super random fact about this movie. That's like, what? Um, uh, One of the things being like when reading Brando's book, uh, Brando was supposed to have full, like he was supposed to be nude. He agreed to it and everything like that too. (laughs) And first, so this is Bertolucci's mindset when directing this film. He told Brando, I can't see you nude because it'll feel like I'm nude when you're on set. <laughs> because How he's French Brando, can right. you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He does you know, drop his undies in that one scene. <laughs> So, yeah, but like we we don't we don't like in terms of like who's bringing right. nudity, it's Maria Schneider, of course, and not right. him. Um, right. But um, I also think it's very funny because Brando jokes about how it was so cold on set that like his <laughs> penis pretty much like just went inside of him. Um, but that's you know neither here nor, nor there. Um, but even like the fact that like with Agnes Varda's involvement and in everything. Um, this was actually filmed during the time when Agnes Varda lost her close friend, Jim Morrison. And mm. I don't have the full like backing for this, but it has been rumored that the the scene where Brando is looking at his wife and doing that, you know, that gut-wrenching speech is was written primarily by her because mm. she felt similarly towards Morrison. Agnes Varda was actually one of six people to attend Morrison's funeral. They had become extremely close. And I think it was also rumored that like she was in love with him, but he was with Pamela Corson and stuff. I also have a very big fascination with Jim Morrison. Um, Wow. Yeah. This is is all totally new information to me. So I, so I remember like looking it up because when I had found out that if you look at, behind the scene footage of donkey skin there's a full section that's like oh and uh, jim morrison from the door visits the set and donkey skin was filmed (laughs) around the same time so i'm like what so i I happened to look up and see like was he ever involved in last tango since i had now found out that agnes involved with it right so then i came across this post and it's just one lone post on like reddit that says that this happened no backing or anything but Mm. if the timeline is correct which it is because jim morrison ended up passing i think probably three months during the production of this movie i could totally see 
her taking this and like maybe like you know it, i wouldn't be surprised processing her own grief maybe that exactly way. Yeah. and like yeah. it's very reflective because uh, jim morrison well his autopsy was never done but obviously yeah. Oh, yeah. he had a, an affinity for drugs so he was he his whole thing of going to paris was to become a poem a, a poet a poet and things like that right. and to because he actually went to uf for film he always had a huge interest in film mm-hmm. so the goal was to him to do poetry and also take a step into film and do some films and stuff like that along with agnes and a bunch of other french filmmakers so i could see him sort of seeing let's leave the rock star thing behind and move to the next level and it's the funniest thing because if you watch the donkey skin behind the scene features the ink like the translation for it is like jim morrison on the set of donkey skin and they show full video footage of him and everything and it's like both him and the director had affinity for princesses and it's just the funniest (laughs) line in that documentary it's just so like okay that's a weird way of phrasing that but whatever um but yeah like Right, and Donkey Skin was, of course, directed by Jacques Demy, Agnes Varda's husband at the time. So yeah. the, all the connections are there. That's re- and I've actually covered Donkey Skin on my podcast years ago, but I never got this Jim Morrison angle. So it's like everything I've known is such a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, my brain was completely like broken. But I also think maybe oh. that's what makes this movie so special is yeah. because you had, you know, maybe in reality, and obviously this is all speculative, right? I don't think she ever fully wrote about this and her experience with Last Tango in Paris, at least in full detail. But mm. the fact that this very much, this whole representation of Jean could have been Agnes Varda now kind of going wow. through life at a, in her, like, cause she, I think was what, 20s, 30s at the time when she was making this film. Um, oh, maybe a little yeah. bit older. Yeah, probably at least in her 30s. I mean, she made her first film in the early 50s. You That's know, true. That's court. true. So she'd been around a bit there, but but still, I mean, very in touch, I'm sure, with her own youth and her own coming of age and all and, of that. And now navigating yeah. the death of possibly someone who she admired and, and loved, mm-hmm. no less. I mean, you know, for her to be one of six people, even Jim Morrison's family was not allowed at his funeral in Paris. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that she must have played like a huge role in his, you know, life in Paris and everything like that. And she lost, you know, him. And I think it wouldn't be surprising to me if there was some, you know, newfound knowledge that was like, oh yeah, she did channel all of that when helping write the dialogue for Paul in terms Mm. of like that grief and the complexity of grief, because I feel like you'll only really understand that complexity if you've gone through it and it's stuck with you or you're currently going through it. I feel like it's one of the best representations of grief out there in terms of the complexity of it, especially grief within men. And and grief that when it's not expected, you know, when it's a tragic, sudden loss rather than somebody who's passed from old age or a long-term chronic illness. But it's like that abrupt kind of throwing life off the rails because what you thought was going to be kind of your routine for the foreseeable future all of a sudden is no more. That, yeah. that person is gone and you're left having to deal with it. So pretty heavy topics. Well, speaking of sudden death, let's just talk about the ending. I want to get your thoughts on how this film, all the complexities and all the tangles of, of uh, flawed relationships kind of reaches its kind of culminating point, which is, of course, you know, um, Paul chasing Sean after he's he's trying to now change the terms of the relationship. Now he wants to have more of a conventional romantic you know dating type of thing and and she won't have it and uh, she pulls the gun which has sort of been you know 
floating around there for a while and then she does him in but uh, you know we're in spoiler territory now yeah. an hour plus into it but what are your thoughts on how Bertolucci wound up this story I think there's no other way to have wound up the story because I yeah. think if it if because once again here is Paul going through a, a break a, a, a huge mental you know, moment collapse in his life through grieving and everything. And now all of a sudden he completely switches the tone and now becomes, you know, through grieving flips everything and, and now wants to be in Jean's life and, and be a Her boyfriend, and right? Be your boyfriend. <laughs> and, and to the point where now we're yeah. not even getting like a, Hey, you know, I changed your mind. I, I want to be with you and stuff like, and I think, from my perspective and trying to feel like I am like, and thinking about Jean, right now we have this older, good looking man. Who's like, yeah, I really don't want to know anything about you. There's like a mysteriousness behind him. But now all of a sudden when he's going, Hey, I want to love you. I, I want to be with you and I want to marry you. And we'll name our kids this and this and this, it gets real creepy real fast. And that allure right. dissipates. So all of a quickly. sudden he's like this middle-aged dumpy man with a receding hairline. It's like, I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so even if he's marlon brando he's like i should probably just get with a guy my own age and actually build a life together yeah because i think do, the, in know? the ideal yeah. scenario of this you know the young girl i think it would have been something that if it were to ever be successful it would have to play out over time like they would keep mm -hmm. and then maybe it would be like a love story right like he would get like small she would get like small little morsels about his life and maybe he'll ask a question or two about hers and then it will lead and lead and lead until finally a big reveal after like six months to a year where it's like i love you marry me and all stuff like that not yeah. within less than a week he's going i don't want to know anything about you to now hi i'm paul my i'm a widower <laughs> my wife just committed suicide two weeks ago how are you yeah. like it's yeah. such it is and that's really what he does there's, like, there's some the, baggage there is that what you're saying yeah, yeah like it's it's it, it's almost like the entire like everything worse about adulthood becomes personified in paul mm -hmm. and smacks her in the face here yeah. she like you know whether it's financial going through death marriage grievances love and all stuff like that she is just smacked with his worldwood of emotions and right. she kind of tries to like you know i don't want to say hear him out but like they go to the um the the ball the ballroom where yeah, there's the that tango, waltz, right, the right, tango right. scene which is honestly yeah. like like my favorite because i think their dialogue in there is so good because it's so natural. And once again, we get that glimpse of chemistry before she quickly realizes what's going on and has a sober thought and starts beginning to run away from him. And it, it's such a nice glimpse of like what could have been right. Like it's such, it's a small snapshot moment of what could have been with them. If, if things had gone together and things had been okay, but that's not realistic. That's not the way that this was ever going to work out. So I think the ending of her, you know, shooting him as drastic as it seems, I think it was the only way, right? Because if they if they had gotten together, you're condoning this behavior, or at mm -hmm. least people might think you are condoning this behavior. Or you're thinking that this is the way to build a relationship and yeah. you know, get to know each other. It's like, no, that's not what this was about. This was not about, you know, kind of a meet cute and, you know, we work through our ups and downs and we have our life together <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. And she That's says it in the end. And what she says, like when she, after she shoots him and she's just rehearsing her line of what she says to the police, all of it is true. Like that's yeah. the thing. 
all of it is true that I don't right. know him. He followed me. He tried to rape me and I, you know, he followed me back here. Like that all well, of it is true. And it's very right. like a, it's obviously a more condensed version of the timeline, but mm-hmm. in terms of capturing his initial thought with her and like what he was expecting from her, it pretty much checks checks out you know right right there there is no lie there and and everything that she says and and that's the thing some some men some toxic guys out there who will say oh look at her this little temptress who's now getting her alibi fixed up and i and i yeah. know that that's a reaction that some people have towards the film it's like yeah she is the femme fatale she is the one who quote unquote lured him into this tawdry mess and now she kills him and now she's going to act like she's all innocent to me, that's a fundamentally gross and mistaken reading because, yeah. right, what she's saying is actually true. He did in, impose himself on her. He took her under his power. Yes, there was a certain sense of complicity or a, a maybe an, uh, a lack of resistance. But he over... didn't know that going into it. Right. He didn't right. know if consent was existing. And, you know, how could he ever, ex- it, how, you know, in, in reality, how could he ever expect that, you know, right. all of a sudden he's just going to look at a woman and they're just not going to say anything and get together. And it just so happened by miracle chance that it, it mm-hmm. you know, it worked. But mm-hmm. like in terms of for him, but. um well, he took advantage of a of a young woman's vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily excuse it. The fact that she didn't, you know, fight ferociously to escape his clutches is not an excuse to justify, you know, the the power imbalance that really was there. You know, yeah, she may be legally of age, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this is a situation of, of exploitation and of of uh, you know, I, I would say abuse. You know, uh, she's she's in a situation where she you know was taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can debate to what degree she was culpable in allowing that to happen. But um, yeah, I, that and that's where I go. Come back to I I don't see myself ever behaving in that way mm-hmm. because I just don't fundamentally relate to other people, women that way yeah um, and i feel like that's just that's my my moral compass says you know yeah i'm in an old i'm a i'm alone in an apartment with an attractive young woman i'm not going to do what paul does in this situation yeah and and it, you know right. you would only hope that like majority of people would feel right. that way right? Right, right right um but and that whole ending scene like right before up until he starts chasing her and things like that when they're in the ballroom and doing the tango and mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. his i just love how out of nowhere he just becomes a drunken poet like <laughs> i love the shift in his yeah, dialogue yeah. my favorite dialogue of all time from that film is when he just looks at her spilling whiskey all over the place but still happens to say like something so gorgeous and so eloquent he says beauty of mind sit before me let me peruse you and remember you always like this is Mm. one of those things that you would just when watching that scene and seeing brando and everything you wouldn't get that impression from him from how he's been acting this entire time and maybe we're just getting a glimpse of maybe the early stages of his marriage you know speculative mm-hmm. of course but well what made him an attractive man what made yeah. him this kind of charming 
literate, you know, but then he also gets goofy and he starts saying like, you know, uh, can't you see I'm nature boy. And then he gets real (laughs) cocky with it and everything like that. Um, but still like the execution when they're dancing and their chemistry during that scene is unmatched. It's so natural. It just seems like genuinely two people being drunk having a good time even like and even like i I love the way that she processes stuff while she's in this scene um because she's like oh you like the country and stuff and he says something very perverted and she just looks away and she goes i hate the country like i just i love the way that it's structured and i and even in a way that it's not structured um i it's it's such in my opinion such a good scene it's filmed so well and um, I, I feel like we really got to see, you know, that glimpse of what if, right? And it, it was a, a glorious what if, but it was never meant to be and it shouldn't have ever been. It was never going well, to work out that pretty. Right. It's it's the beauty of the moment that they were in. And that was the kind of the, the, the height and the depth of it really right there. And, and Brando dancing with her. And then that <laughs> one, like one of the judges comes through and is like trying to shoo him out. And she, yeah. he just immediately dances with her and his yeah. reactions and how into it he is and everything like that. I, I genuinely wonder if Brando enjoyed making that scene because I, I feel like, and even with that type of scene, like he, it's, it's so like playful. It seems that he must've been enjoying it. Even like when he's on his way out, he's about to show his, his you know, his butt to her. And it's like <laughs> speaking in French, but still in that poetic, like, to kiss to the moon, kiss, kiss, and all this, you know, just randomness and everything. I just, I love it. It's, it's so, I think it's such a unique scene and I have yet to see um, a playful connection like that in a film. I feel like a lot of um, connection with actors and chemistry usually is, is deep rooted. Like, Oh, we love each other. It's this and this and this. Whereas Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever get to see a lot of, the drunken playfulness and just kind of a little bit high on life, a little bit high on lust type of stuff. Yeah. I, re- I, I love that scene so much. Well, and it, and it, it does feel very spontaneous. Like this wasn't something that's been planned and conceived for weeks and months on end. It was a sort of like a, a, a really an inspiration in the moment, maybe not a hundred percent raw improvised, but you know, he, he kind of took the German of an idea and just expanded it. And I think that is, that is really kind of where this movie succeeds at its highest levels is like you sort of set the conditions and you let the actors, you let the cinematographers, you let the artistic talents of all different levels kind of do their thing. And, and this does take last tango into that kind of higher uh, echelon of, of, uh, you know, of all time great films, which I, I really believe this one is, you know, again, all the controversy, all of the problematic stuff, is definitely part of it, but uh, at it's it's day, overall too. It's a simple film. film. It's yeah. pretty oh, yeah, simple, right. and mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that you're able to construct these two very complex characters and add depth to the scenario, I think is is genius. I don't think you know this team behind Last Tango in Paris could have been successful without them. You know, I don't ever yeah. see this like if they want to adapt this into like a like a almost like a very cheesy romance film and things like that with, I don't know, Paul Rudd or someone else, you know, <laughs> someone else who could oh, just yeah. fit that age range. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't work because it didn't have the charm like it did, but it also wouldn't have the ugly that this film carries too. 
Yeah, I, d- I don't really see this one as a ripe for a remake. <laughs> no, but there is. So um, yeah. I ended up hearing about a year ago that there was going to be a Showtime TV called Tango where it shows oh. how this movie was made. Really? I don't okay. agree with it because I know that they're – I have a gut feeling that they're going to go in the direction of – sadly damning people who don't have a voice right now to speak up for themselves. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, unless it's people who really were intimately connected with the making of the film and had a dedicated principle saying we want to really kind of replicate our experience of doing it. But I don't think you're right. I, I, I would not trust a production at this point. Well, in time and also to say, too, when they announced yeah. the producer, I looked at the producer and it was like the producer of entourage. I'm like, I don't see this working. Well, I don't yeah, see this right. working. Well, they're, they're going to play to all the most tawdry elements. Right. Okay. There's been yeah. no development since its announcement though. There's been no development. So I'm wondering if they quietly axed it because it did not get any good feedback when they were going to make it. Cause people were saying like, Oh, you're just going to show Maria Schneider's trauma, which is true. Yeah. You're going to still see her trauma, but you're still also giving, you know, you're fitting personas onto people for circumstances that people who are alive and who are there witnessing this are not around anymore. Yeah. I mean, so, it, really, it, it does feel like it's a different type of exploitation and, and maybe what you might call a virtue signal. I think it would have been like blonde. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I wasn't a fan. I like, I, I won't watch blonde because mm-hmm. of, and, and, and it's funny. Cause it's like, you'll watch last year in Paris, but not blonde at the end of the day. Like blonde was written by people who had no connection to Marilyn Monroe. Right. And it's, it's been proven over and over again that it is a, a very misconstrued representation of her. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Last Tango, you know, for all its flaws or whatever you might want to say, did sort of organically arise out of this scene in this moment in time. Blonde was a very conscious retro fitting of a story told for 2022 of times that are, you know, way beyond before the birth date of the majority of people who made it, you know. So it really is a, uh, you know, kind of a fanciful notion. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have not seen it and I have no interest in seeing it either just because I feel like it, it just feels inappropriate despite, I'm sure that there are probably some very good artistic achievements associated with the film, just in terms of the making of and all of that. I'm not going to detract from that work, but I just don't feel like that's a, a message or a content that I really feel like I want to ingest it or endorse it so yeah yeah, yeah I'm like i feel like with last tango i i've, I've read interviews with maria schneider mm-hmm. where she even talks about how brando and her like became very close like, right right friendship wise and right. we keep tabs on each other and stuff like that now of course if i didn't find that stuff i probably wouldn't be wanting to talk about mm-hmm, it you know mm-hmm. i probably would it would just be one of those films that i would just still like hold close to my heart but probably publicly wouldn't but because like from her own recollection and stuff it's kind of been shown to be misconstrued it's a little bit easier to back up yeah. whereas with blonde no like Mar- marilyn monroe has no living relatives right that could even remotely speak up on her behalf right so, or people it, who knew her who worked with her who were part of this production right i got it. yeah exactly all right. Well, Stephanie, it's been an hour and a half, and I do want to give my guests, other guests, uh, something to talk about. <laughs> it's okay if you got to chop up me oh, just rambling. Oh, it's to- It's all good. No, this, it's all good. This, I understand. This has been brilliant and wonderful, and I am so glad I've given you this opportunity and that we've had a chance to 
compare notes and thoughts on this uh, pretty extraordinary work of cinematic art. So thank you for your time it, it's, tonight. Yeah. Of course. It's so nice being able to talk about it, review the criticism and continue to talk about it, but still also like I genuinely think it is a very well-made movie that has its flaws, but also has its, its, its benefits to watching it. And it, I think it really is overall like extremely well-made despite its flaws. And it's nice being able to talk about it in a light where you know, we can look at the beauty of it, but also still criticize and and be very true about the faults of it. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate this so much. I, I also, <laughs> I made five years ago, I, there's a 20 minute video yeah. of me, okay. like 17 years old, talking about this film and talking about the controversy. Wow. And I actually watched it today okay. before this. And I, I was just kind of shaking my head because I'm like, man, I'm still the same. Like it was like my opinion and everything still has not changed from, you know, five years ago. So from, I think maybe I was like 20 at the time. So 20 to now 24, mm -hmm. almost 25. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even as I've matured, I still share my own opinions about this film and it's been great talking about them because no one ever knows this movie. <laughs> well, absolutely. I'm so delighted that you took me up on this invitation. Stephanie made a great, uh, you know, opening bid <laughs> on this film. So definitely. You got to check out the donkey skin behind the scenes. Yeah. It's the most wild, unexpected stuff too. Like just a random Jim Morrison popping up in the middle of it. It's in the um the Jacques Demi collection with the Donkey Skin DVD in it. Huh. So okay, well definitely yeah. check it out. Well, yeah, send me any links that you may have, and uh, if, even if you want to post that video, if you want to share it, I mean, no pressure or anything. But uh, yeah, I, like I I, I showed it yeah. recently okay. to um I think it was Savannah and my boyfriend who I showed it recently to. So I'll send you that link super quickly, and you can make it available to whoever's curious and just wants to see that. Very very, very random little snippet yeah. um, inside the donkey skin um, documentary behind cool. the scenes. Well, we will put that. But thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to uh, whenever I can step into the purple noon world and uh, we'll be talking again, I'm sure, in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Thanks, All right, well, here we are back for segment number two in our coverage of Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Tango in Paris. And uh, with me for this portion is Josh Hornbeck. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's been a long time since I've uh, recorded with you on your show. I know we did the, the best of the year just a few months yep. ago, uh, but uh, this is uh, lovely to get to dive back into the films of uh, the 70s. So thanks for having me on. Yes, in, the, in this kind of mild, uh, somewhat innocuous little uh, out-of-the-way film here that yeah, <laughs> people right. haven't really had a whole lot to say about, but here we are. No, actually, you know, I and and I, I really value having you on because this is a film, you know, I well, I'll, I'll just say, I think 
Stephanie and I, in our first segment, we did a pretty good hour and a half full coverage. Mm -hmm. That could have been a good standalone episode, and I would have been very satisfied releasing it as such. But this is a film that got people talking and still does. You know, uh, maybe it's yeah. not quite the hot topic that it is uh, that it was back in its day. But every time it's brought up, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it just sort of touches nerves. And uh, you and I, you know, you've gone back to some of the earliest days of this particular podcast. We've talked about a lot of different movies over the years. And one of the things I've really, you know, gotten to appreciate about you is just your, your eye for themes of justice, oppression, exploitation, uh, you know, just kind of the, the, the harshness that the world can um, unleash on, on individuals of all different sorts you know different genders ages backgrounds cultures and you know with with the discourse about this film you know i might be as bold as to say well what would josh think about this you know given all the <laughs> different elements of controversy but i i don't want to jump to conclusions and I, again i and we haven't really had a chance to talk about it ahead of time so uh i want to just kind of give you the floor and, and tell us just a little bit about uh your your history with this film, if you want to talk about Bertolucci or Marlon Brando or whatever, kind of just kind of give us our your your kind of opening take, and we'll just have the conversation flow from there. Yeah, you know, uh, I I signed up for this before I knew much about the controversy. Uh, this was a film that was early in my career as a cinephile. Right, I I watched it as part of my. Uh, journey through Roger Ebert's great films list. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I knew he was a, a big admirer of the film. So I think I watched it maybe 15 years ago first, um, and was really, really taken with it, really impressed by it, really mm -hmm. captivated by the film, uh, by the, there was something about it that, that shook me and captivated me. And so I was really, really intrigued by it. And then uh, as I learned more about it, especially in recent years with Maria Schneider talking about her experiences on the set and with Bertolucci kind of confirming those experiences, but not really being very um, repentant uh, about that and, and saying, you know, I, I, I think that I did what I had to do for the sake of the film. And as we have come over recent years to really re-examine the the power of directors and the power that filmmakers and and the power imbalances that can happen on sets uh, i was i was curious to know how i'd feel in revisiting the film mm -hmm. um, i think some things definitely have not aged as well uh some things for me i think are uh feel more false uh, seem mm -hmm. less emotionally true that it that some of it plays more as a male fantasy than uh yeah, yeah. as uh, uh especially since we spend so much time with uh jean eugene and her mm -hmm. and, and her life outside of this kind of purgatory in the apartment um and so i you know i i want to believe more of her experience but then other parts of it, I think, are really still really rich, and I think there's some really interesting things there. But we also can't dismiss the the conditions on set. Really, there are a lot of really rich things within the film, but at the same time, we can't ignore uh, how it was made, the trauma that was inflicted upon 
Maria Schneider that, uh, again, when you don't create a safe working environment, it, it can uh, be emotionally damaging to the people involved. Yeah. And, you know, that word trauma, I think, is, is pretty, pretty critical and pretty key to what's going on here. As I was kind of rewatching it again a little bit before the uh, recording session tonight, that's what kind of stood out to me is like, this is a story of, of people who've been traumatized and are mm-hmm. still in the process of that, of that trauma cycle, inflicting it on each other in, in many ways. And you yeah. know, ultimately, of course, it sort of becomes the ultimate trauma uh, when we get to the end and, you know, Jean takes Paul's life um, <clears throat> as he's traumatizing her, chasing her along and, mm-hmm. and trying to repeat those power games that uh, had, had developed within the confines of that apartment. Now he wants to bring that out into the, into the real world. And, yeah. wants to pursue this uh, more you know conventional relationship with her and at that point the spell's been broken uh, but but yeah the, the, that concept of trauma uh, that was part of Bertolucci's um, artistic method you could say I mean the fact that he was defending the the ruse um, with of course the butter scene as it's yeah kind of come to be known and and the uh, the desire that he and and even to a certain extent Marlon Brando had to get that sincere gut wrenching, no faking, no acting reaction from Maria Schneider as she's being violated on the floor. There, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a very powerful scene, but it's also a pretty horrible and ugly scene. Even even if you had no, even if you were watching it under the assumption that this was all scripted out and planned, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty harrowing stuff, you know. Yeah, what's going on there? And as I said in the previous segment, the fact that it's Marlon Brando, uh, you know, not just some actor who's who's doing these things, who's who's giving voice and and the, the physicality and all of that. That's that's really, I think, what made this film you know, back then, so, so shocking and so scandalous and continues to deliver such a powerful punch because, you know, while we've certainly gone much further in just about every form of extremity that you can imagine, as far as the events uh, portrayed on film or the types of behaviors or situations, I mean, we have whole genres of torture porn and just mm-hmm. straight up porn and and yeah. uh, even even the emotional uh, harshness uh, of uh, you know really strong conflict and and uh, savage put downs and all of that I, I mean all of those taboos that the last tango in Paris was kind of shattering have been just ground into fine dust if you want to go down those those rabbit trails but this this story is told in a in a very artistically compelling way as well and that's another piece of it it's like this is top-notch filmmaking as, as a craft and you know big personalities actors you got the location of the city of paris i mean there's all these really remarkable elements at play here but yeah talk a little bit more about some of those scenes where you, you, you maybe you said this was a, a like a fantasy I, I totally agree with that but i want to kind of let you unpack that a little bit further yeah you know i think i think what doesn't hold is true to me watching this 15 years later now that i've had some life experience and have kind of done some of my own growing um yeah. and uh studying more feminist literature and and really trying to take to heart 
the the works of female filmmakers as well um who have who i think approach these types of stories i think with a a, a more honest eye than men do uh, <laughs> yeah. i I, th- yeah. I i think that what we see is the the, the part that never quite worked for me is uh, Jean Jean's? I'm, I'm going to mispronounce her name throughout, and I apologize to everyone. Yeah. Um, I go back her, and forth as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's her continual her her coming back into this um, relationship mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the film, especially after that initial rape. Uh, Roger Ebert, even in you know 1970 to the the initial his initial review of it calls it a rape that that first encounter in Mm -hmm. the in the apartment and and i think it's played you know maria schneider knows exactly what it is and she performs it beautifully uh afterwards uh the the shame the the fear the desire to just get away from him so all of that, I think, is is really honest, but it's that coming back and entering into the relationship. It's the the moment after the butter scene, you know, even though, you know, she kind of gets a little bit of revenge with the electrical socket, it's that she continues to to put herself in a situation where she can be taken advantage of by this man. And and I don't know that I fully buy that based on the character that we're presented um, on screen. She's a really rich character, and mm-hmm. uh, and I and I just I don't I don't see that uh, in in the course of the film. Well, especially when uh, Bertolucci puts them in these kind of cutesy moments, you know, cause like there's that, there's that banter when he's yeah. playing the harmonica and telling his story, which may or may not be true about growing up mm-hmm. on a farm and cow shit in his shoes and having to milk the cow. And, and, and she's kind of, this is her at her sweetest and most vulnerable. And she's like this little, you know, sex kitten is kind of how she's portrayed, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, if this is going to be a gritty, intense, physical, sensual affair where it's a, it's about the sexuality, it's about the carnal aspects of, of their coming together, then this kind of boopsy do stuff is is kind of incongruous, right? And I and I that's again where I see that that male fantasy that you know mm-hmm. guys in the audience, guys of this time, guys of that generation growing up with uh, the playboy lifestyle and Hugh Hefner, he's the man and all of that. And then Brando, of course, himself had that charismatic sex appeal. And, you know, he's the guy that you want to be because the chicks all want to get with him type of thing. The fact that he can just be alone in this apartment with this woman doesn't even have to say a word. They just make eye contact and all of a sudden, boom, he grabs yeah. her, hoists her over the shoulder and she's loving it. Like, this is just kind of like, it is, it, it is like this kind of horny fantasy come to come to life and portrayed on screen and because she's very content maria schneider and the jean character to walk around naked for large portions of the film and it's it's almost kind of like all the so-called benefits of the free love and the and the younger generation that a horny old goat like marlon brando can get with you know because he's he's him you know uh, yeah. a, a, a woman less than half his age uh, both in real life and as a character on screen. Of course, Hollywood's gone way back with 
autumn to spring romances with with older leading men and younger desirable women but this one really consciously plays that out and and i think even some of the uh the coarse humor you know uh, mm-hmm. strong arms to squeeze a fart out of you and, and all that kind of stuff that it felt to me like that's playing to sort of an older mentality not mm-hmm. to say that there's not guys out there living and breathing today that still kind of function in that same kind of psychological vein but uh you know it is it is an interesting portrayal and and i think bertolucci himself you know certainly knew how to blend sexuality with artistic filmmaking so that you have this kind of veneer of respectability while also you know playing pretty heavily into those voyeuristic uh the the appeal of of these types of movies you know so it's a very interesting dynamic that's going on there uh but you're right as as a as a character study that has that ring of truth i think there are some pretty big leaps and stretches that are taking place here yeah well and and i think that you know when you look at her relationship with her filmmaker boyfriend and fiance i think there could have been a really really interesting if they had developed that just a little bit more if bertolucci mm-hmm. had played with that just a tiny bit more i think that you could have seen a bit more of of the reason that she is drawn to to paul and to his Mm -hmm. maybe more down-to-earthness or his his um lack of pretension his lack of guile you know i mean when you've got the your fiance ambushing you at the train station with a camera crew you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, right, right. I, I, I get that there's something there that I think that I think Bertolucci's trying to do in contrasting the two men, but I don't think it's it's explored enough. I don't I don't know that that is fully resolved for me um, mm-hmm. in a way that that I think makes me buy that she stays with this man who assaulted her well you've got these two poles you've got this kind of insipid almost prissy artiste you know jean-pierre leo the filmmaker is this bertolucci kind of taking a dig at some of the younger wannabes (laughs) out there who are using their camera in this kind of pseudo cinema verite way they've they've kind of bought into the spontaneity of of the of the new wave or of just this kind of new freedom of filmmaking but it's it's almost like a somewhat older generation of today making fun of the millennials with their selfie sticks or whatever you know just kind of looking down at these these young pups who don't really know what they're doing and yet they've got the toys and the tools and they they act like they do uh here's brando the man's man he's this surly profane no bullshit no apologies he just kind of goes for what he wants it's it's it is kind of these two sort of male archetypes uh kind of at polar ends of the spectrum here it was it was interesting tonight i was watching the, the scene where she comes to the train station and he's across on the other side of the platform there mm-hmm. and then he kind of comes over her way and she's she's mad at him she says i'm mm-hmm. tired of being raped and it's like wow again language is like okay so you're calling what he's doing with with his camera to you that's a, that's a form of rape and yet here you are trotting back to the apartment to to get with paul when he has literally physically done that it's like 
Okay, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating casting because of who Jean-Pierre Léod is and his mm-hmm. whole career leading up to this point. So there is all this kind of meta in, interesting stuff going on just from sort of a cinephile perspective and the history of film and what was happening in the culture at the time. Uh, and so, again, you, you sort of have this kind of meta art piece going on that to me, it's almost hard to ignore those elements and get back to the story. I, I do. I find it all yeah. very interesting, but the story itself becomes a little bit secondary because of all the surface dynamics of what's going on. Yeah. And, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, the French dialogue was adapted by Anya Sparta. Yes. Fascinating, to, isn't that too? To right? me <laughs> is interesting as well, because again, there's this, as as a, someone who moved in the new wave circles and is mm-hmm. a, a, a part of the early new wave movement, you get this kind of delightful poking fun at the new wave, yeah. in, in it, and it's there's something in that that I I feel like again Bertolucci just never quite fully gets to with with that and uh, the the three storylines that we have between paul and his his mother-in-law and his dead wife and jean and her fiance and then the two of them together i never fully felt like everything cohered in a way that was satisfying as satisfying Mm -hmm. as i wanted it to be um this time through you know when i first saw it i thought this is a masterpiece i love this film and watching it again i just i was left less satisfied this time through it it feels a little bit more like a project that was somewhat hastily put together or went through a lot of different stages. Uh, as we said again in the previous segment, they had different uh, cast originally in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, re- reunion of Trontagnan and Dominique Sanda from the uh, the Conformist was kind of the Bertolucci's original vision. You, you put Brando in there, and that just changes everything. Yeah. The, the whole yeah. center of gravity of the film. Uh, is is disrupted but you know it certainly went on to uh, pay super mega dividends as as a phenomenon as a story Um, the other another interesting storyline that's kind of just alluded to is is the uh, brief interludes with Paul and his late wife's lover you know Mm -hmm. which is another sort of trauma that Paul has experienced that he's he's been living off of his wife's wealth not that it's extraordinary but you know he's basically been it seems like loafing about paris Mm -hmm. Uh, he's an expat so something's happened to him back in the states that uh, presumably didn't go well and now even in this kind of wretched mediocre situation he finds himself in even his wife uh who was unfaithful to him in life now she takes her own life. So, yeah, that's going to mess with the guy's head, you know, whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. uh, other sins he may have committed to, to set up the dynamics. It's like it's all going to come crashing down pretty brutally. And so even though, you know, there, there are moments in the film where Brando is cast as this kind of like he's the studly dude in a certain sense, living the dream. He's in Paris with this beautiful young woman who's willing to sort of indulge him and you know, let him have her way with her um, certainly doesn't last for very long. And and I think you could say to Bertolucci's perhaps credit somewhat is that the whole scenario that he's depicted here is cataclysmically unstable and 
bound for ruin. There's just no way that this is going to turn into some kind of a lasting, satisfying new chapter in, in, in Paul's tumultuous life. Yeah, and, and I think that the thing that really works for me about the film and that, you know, again, I, I still liked the film and I, and oh, I, yeah. still, mm-hmm. I still found it really compelling. And I think the thing that really, um, on this viewing, um, it, that really worked more than I expected to was, you know, in so many of these, these stories of uh, hasty romances and the the may december uh older man meets and whisks away the younger woman you know the the final ending you, you see them kind of off they 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 start a new life together in a far off you know wherever yeah. it is you know they 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 find some sort of equilibrium and happiness together and and i think that that the film really does as much as I don't like the way it has um, has has removed so much agency from uh, the Maria Schneider character, I do think it it does show the ways that men attempt to dominate and control within relationships, and mm-hmm. the way in those power dynamics there is this this attempt to to orchestrate and to, to have relationships on their terms and their terms only mm-hmm. every time she tries to make a bid for something else or to change something he counters and he, he sets down these rules very hard and right. um, no uh, names, no personal history. Yeah, We're yeah. just here to do it in this room, get on the mattress and that's yeah. it. You know, And, right. and then when he, you know, when she goes back to the room suddenly you know at the end of the film the the room is empty and it's gone Mm -hmm. and uh she's devastated and again i don't buy the devastation but but he has removed this because it's on his terms everything is is based on his um conception of what this relationship's supposed to be and then you know he decides to try to move the relationship into the real world and it's going to be on his terms again and and i appreciate that that she is then able to see him for who he is this washed up Mm -hmm. man twice her age and and so to me i think it 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 shows again the the stark power imbalances within those types of relationships so i again i I, I think that there's something there that is is really rich and is really uh, really powerful in the ways that men attempt to control the women in their lives. Yeah, and the women have very limited choices and options. Obviously, yeah. in the in this film, they're they're really whittled down to almost survival. You know, yeah. Uh, who's gonna Who's gonna take out who first? Because that's the other thing. I mean, you, you see all of the seeds in Paul's character of a domestic abuser you know i mean at some point or another he's going to not just get out the butter he's going to you know use the fist the hands Uh, you you see he's got that violent temperament on my monitor right now is that that scene where he's beating up the guy in the back alley there so Mm -hmm. he, he absolutely has you know all those traits of what's come to be known as toxic masculinity and so yeah. there really is a character study of, of that kind of dead end that guys let themselves get into or perhaps through the result of their own trauma their own 
role models, upbringing, just that inner psychological stuff that just drives them towards this type of violent expression. And so, yeah, there, there is life wisdom and truth to be gleaned from this film. And I guess, you know, as our, you know, kind of our, our allotted time is winding down here, I kind of want to give you a chance to talk to maybe uh, first-time viewers, younger viewers, people who haven't seen this film uh, about, about the value of, of taking it in. Like when I went into Letterboxd and saw a lot of reviews from what I presume to be our younger people just vehemently denouncing this film, even if they haven't seen it. They've heard the stories. They 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 side with Maria Schneider. They side against these creepy, you know, exploitive older men who are manipulating vulnerable young women. And I'm I'm with them as far as championing the cause and saying this should not be the norm. If somebody doesn't want to watch this movie, I'm not going to judge or criticize them or fault them for that. But I feel like there is value in this film that you may even have to sort of, you know, put some of your own emotional revulsion in check to just sort of see what this is all about. Yeah. And I, and I also, you know, I think there was a really great, as I, as I was doing some research beforehand, there were some great articles. If you really do read um, some of the pieces there, there was a misconstrual of um, what actually happened. And I know that when you do go down the letterboxed reviews, there are people who believe that she was actually raped on the set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, what she had said was that she felt like she was raped because of the the fact that they sprung the addition of the butter into this scene that was scripted and that she knew yeah. was scripted in there and that she had felt humiliated and it was all simulated. And, and so it was something that she felt really, really um, manipulated and humiliated and felt incredibly used by the two men uh, right they didn't trust her enough to say yeah they they didn't trust her enough to say here's what's going to happen act your heart out you know they they wanted to really have that that shock and that sense of genuine terror you know and and helplessness yeah it it comes through but it's kind of like kind of cruel and and i I think i think you can definitely make the case that that she paid a long-term price for that Mm -hmm. you know what I would what I would recommend is is do some reading and research beforehand if this is a mm. film that you want to wrestle with. Um, yeah, you know, I read the the Pauline Kale essay, which was uh, the review, which was included on the Criterion Laserdisc um, yeah. originally, and that helped get me some good framing for the film as well. Um, and I was really grateful that it was uh, a woman who was writing about the film. Uh, I don't always love Pauline Kale, but I think she had some really great insights into the film that gave me uh, some other ways to uh, look at the film. And I, I don't agree with everything she said there, but it, it gave me some, it gave me some new insights as I was watching it. I think also that the, the cautionary tale of what happened here and what happened at many times, you know, throughout uh, films in the the 60s and 70s and i mean even you know still happens right now it it's a good reminder of why the practice of intimacy coordinators is becoming more and more common uh, yeah. and i think it's it's really i think it's really imperative because an intimacy coordinator would have stopped this from happening or would have helped the actors know how to approach this and get what the director wanted without Mm -hmm. damaging anyone 
And and making sure that there's support, there's yeah. recovery, that after you've kind of poured your heart and soul into a scene or maybe had your heart and soul torn out of you, at least metaphorically, for the sake of performance and art, that you're not just left there, kind of this quivering mass on the floor, you know, left to kind of figure it out on your own, that the, whether you need to do a therapy session, yeah. get some counseling, be supported just in terms of kindness and, and empathy and, and recognizing you know, because we want to portray, you know, the, the harsh realities that are the life experiences of, of many people in this world, in this audience, uh, we want to take care of the performers who are sort of putting themselves out there for our benefit, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so I think, I think it is, it's just, it's a fascinating sort of cultural touch point. It, it is a film that, you know, I, I much more recently saw it really just in preparation for this podcast, but it's, I think it lives up to the hype um, and and then some because there are just so many fascinating elements to discuss. I still feel like I haven't plumbed the full depths, but I, we've had some yeah. great conversations already. And Josh, I really appreciate your insights and you know, your perspective on the film. Yeah, no, it's been great. So, Thanks for having me on. This was a it was I'm really grateful that I got to revisit it. Uh, yeah. After after uh, this many years, it was a it was a good rewatch. Yep, yep. Do you, you think a Criterion would ever bring it back <laughs> as a as a as a standalone title? I think I think this is one that some time will need to pass probably before yeah. it it comes back. I I think it's possible. I think just about anything's possible uh, sure. these days. But I do think it will need some heavy um, contextualization to to make yeah. that happen. Yep. Yeah, it is interesting that they've never even had it streaming on the channel in any of their, you know, different incarnations. So it feels like, yeah, there's probably some uh, prudent wisdom that says, yeah, let's just not venture into those waters. We got a lot of other good movies we can put out yeah. these days. So, and, and I think that you know, there there is a right now as they are focusing on uh, filmmakers who have historically been excluded from the canon. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that. I, I think that, that they're choosing to to do some active curation in that regard rather than bring filmmakers in who did some damage during their time. Yeah, yeah. And Bertolucci certainly has his representation in the collection already. Exactly. So, yeah, he is exactly. kind of more that older guard. So, all right, Josh, yeah. it's been a good conversation. Thanks again. Look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, David. This has been great. Okay, we are back for the third and final segment of this uh, podcast coverage of Bernardo Berlucci's 1972 film, Last Tango in Paris. And here to wrap it up with me is Richard Doyle. Richard, welcome back to the podcast. Really nice to have you on tonight. It's always good to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, you and I have talked about a lot of films from 1972, and this is one of the the big ones of that year. You know, we I don't expect that we're going to talk about The Godfather, but this is probably, other than that, maybe the biggest uh, headline grabber of, of, uh, of that year as far as uh, 
you know, both prestige movies and controversy and just kind of galvanizing a lot of attention. And I do want to kind of get into some of the, uh, you know, the, the infamous Pauline Kael review and other, you know, kind of reactions to the film. But uh, before we get into some of the analysis of the discourse, I'd like to just kind of hear some of your thoughts about Last Tango. Uh, you know, when did you first see it? What's your impression of the film? Maybe if you want to talk about Bertolucci as a director, I kind of let you just kind of set the table and we'll take the conversation from there. Sure. I, uh, I, I believe I saw this in the late nineties first and I've seen it two or three times since. And just today I finished it. I'm very fond of this film. I think, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, controversy aside, I think it's a beautifully constructed film, mm-hmm. a really almost complete aesthetic statement. I think it's, uh, Extremely well acted, extremely well shot. I mean, Vittorio Storaro's cinematography is uncharacteristic for him and being quite muted, but really beautiful film, sort of autumnal look to it. Mm-hmm. I think I would go so far as to say I think this is Brando's best film performance. Hmm. And interestingly, a sort of performance by him that often doesn't work out, the ones where he is sort of improvising on a character. And I think he does a really good job in this one. And I think Bertolucci kind of gives him the right structure to do it in. So often with Brando, he sort of runs wild with the film. And this one, I think he's really on point. I think the score is lovely. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Gatto Barbieri didn't really do much other scoring work, but I think it's a, a really beautiful score that sort of, completely sums up the film in a way. So mm-hmm. I'm very fond of it. I think it's um, it, it sort of fits into Bertolucci's arc as a director in a very natural way. He was uh, very much a rising star. And I think the way I put it is, you know, film has a tendency to sort of lag behind other art forms in, you know, in advancement, partly because it's such an expensive medium and it's, and it's such a, populist medium that you don't get it's more difficult to do daring things in film than it is in say painting and, mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and, sure. and literature and stuff where the stakes are a bit smaller and there's sort of a, a real audience for bold stuff as well as popular stuff mm-hmm. where it's difficult to do that with film but i think at about this point film was sort of catching up with the rest of the 20th century yeah, yeah. Studios and financial backers saw that there was a market for kind of bold, creative exploration. You know, we've talked on different occasions yeah. about sort of the collapse of censorship standards. And uh, and yet there was also, you know, a desire for cinematic art of a, of a higher aesthetic value. I mean, you know, again, you know, you talk about the the reviews and the the conversation that that, that appealed to people who were you know, really looking to deepen their knowledge, broaden their awareness, uh, you know, a, a certain degree of sophistication in terms of the subject matter. And, uh, you know, all, all of that was there so that there was a both a commercial audience. I mean, this movie was obviously very financially successful as far as, you know, the return on investment. And a lot of that was, deliv- you know, driven by hype and curiosity and you know, the infamous X rating and the fact that it's Marlon Brando in an X rated movie. This isn't just some, 
you know, sleazy brown paper bag, <laughs> raincoat type of production. Uh, it, you know, uh, it, it had sort of the 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 appeal and the merit of a of a first class film production that dealt very frankly with adult subject matter in a way that audiences had never really seen before. So yeah, there was definitely innovation and and courage and and uh, audacity uh, that that drove this. And as you've already said, you know, all the other sort of elements of, of quality filmmaking, cinematography, music, acting performances, even the setting, you know, Paris and and uh, and and the way it's all staged and framed, um, you know, pretty impressive production all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think Bertolucci was sort of on a track of covering more daring and almost like breaching on sort of literary topics in film like having I mean, the conformist i think is a beautiful film and, and yeah adaptation of an alberto moravia novel sort of very current for the time and i think this film is somewhat literary in its subject matter even if it's not you know quite up to that standard it's 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 a film that gets us closer to that standard and i and i think it's um it's fairly limited in the subject matter, like due to its time period, I think there's a huge focus on men in films in the seventies, partly because men are the people making most of the films. Yeah. And, and this is definitely, to me, this feels like a man's movie, you know, um, we've already talked, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but you know, in certain ways, Marlon Brando is, is, even though he meets with kind of a grim, grim end and he's in some ways kind of a pitiful character, but there is a certain aspirational quality uh, to this guy. I mean, he's still studly in a sense. He's, he's betting this beautiful young woman, uh, kind of a no strings attached, uh, friends with benefits type of thing, except they're not really friends. It's, it's very yeah. obviously anonymous sex, but it's still pretty intense and, and, from a certain perspective, you know, pretty satisfying, or at least uh, if you're into sort of that dominant male kind of flexing and, and showing kind of your, your your virility, there it is. I mean, in a, in a certain framing, you know, there's, there's obviously some problematic aspects, uh, both then in that older ethos and by today's standards, where you know you you recognize this is a pretty flawed and broken character. Uh, Josh and I talked about sort of the the trauma that both of our lead characters are going through or have gone through, and, and of course he's lost his wife uh, to suicide, and you know you cannot help but take that somewhat personally. Um, whatever the circumstances are, when a loved one takes their life there's inevitably going to be questions and doubts and, you know, just deep seated pain of the soul, you know, whatever, whatever your relationship may be or whatever the circumstances were that led to that person taking their life, you're going to go through that kind of internal questioning and all of that. So yeah, there's all those things going on, but you know, it's still, it's still Brando he is with this beautiful young woman and uh and that's kind of the central core the object of attraction she is in some ways kind of a a a side character i mean she is a lead and she's she's prominent uh the gene character played by maria schneider but 
we don't get a lot of her interiority. I don't, doesn't seem like we get as much of hers as we get of Brando's. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Or I, I do. I, I think, I mean, this sort of pokes a bit at the, at the critical reception of the film, but I think mm-hmm. there's a tendency to downplay her role in the film. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think she is doing this for reasons, right. That I think most of the reviews don't broach on, you know, <laughs> they yeah. don't talk about yeah. why she would be doing this. It's it only really focus on him. Right. This is like the last week before she's supposed to get yeah. married to the TV director, Jean-Pierre Layaud. And, you know, again, I've talked about that, but what, what did you think about that dynamic? Tell me a little bit more about your take on uh, the Jean character and, and, and what do you think of her dynamics or her motivations to allow herself to get, you know, tangled up with this guy, this stranger that she met in an apartment when she was just going about her business. And the next thing you know, they're banging up against the wall, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't think it's as terribly clear as it is with Brando's character, but I do think a lot of it has to do with um, it's not that Leo's like her fiance there is, is a bad person, but I'm not sure he really sees her. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's very self-centered and he has a sort of worship of her that doesn't seem to involve her. She's an ornament. He's it's yeah. it is kind of almost like a you know a Jean Luc Godard discovers this absolute knockout on a Karina and it's like wow she can be my muse. It almost feels like he's imitating that that model or Antonioni and Monica Vitti. Like I've got this gorgeous woman that I can sort of make as as this object of devotion that all the other cinephiles will gather around and, and gawk at her because she's so stunning, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but is she a real person to him? Or is she an ornament that's going to help advance his career and fulfill his kind of conceit of himself as this budding young artist? Yeah. And I think she, you know, is bothered by this. So when this opportunity comes along, she kind of grasps at it. And it mm-hmm. But it's, it's not... It's not that their relationship is doomed. They seem sort of like a nice couple in many ways. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, facing the reality of who Brando really is, she clearly would rather be with Leon. But it, the, some of the, the mystery and the freedom to act impulsively, you know, is, is something that she's grasping at. You know, she can be a different person. Yeah, and the story takes place over a very compressed amount of time. It's basically yeah. like a weekend, you know, that they have in this apartment. And after that spell has broken, and she and Brando, who have only opened the door a little bit about their personal lives, almost breaking the rules to do so, when she sees him out on the street, you know, I was again just rewatching that scene again this this evening. And you can just tell the look on her face is like, who is this guy? Like, I've had my little impulsive bit of fun, but now he's telling me he loves me and he wants to live with me. Like, get real, you know? And to me, actually, kind of just looking at her facial expression as he's kind of making his pitch to say, you know, come live with me in my little flop house, my little dump. You know, I'm no prize. I got a big inflated prostate, all of that, you know? And it's like, he's, he's trying to, you know, open up, get vulnerable, share himself with her. And you can just sort of see as he's doing that with this kind of almost foolish sincerity, you know, she's just realizing there's just no way I want to get with this guy. I've got this whole other life planned. Her mom's a widow. So maybe it's one of those things where she just sort of needs to get out of the house, get out on her own, 
And after all, maybe she's got her frustrations with this guy that she's engaged to, but comparatively speaking, he's not such a bad catch after all. And, and why throw the whole thing overboard for this washed up old man who thinks he loves me, doesn't even know me. It all makes sense, right? Yes, except that she said it first. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I think yeah. I mean, she, I mean, she's saying that the man she's looking for is the version of him in the room. Yeah, yeah. Right? Who isn't real in a, in a very important sense. And I think the reality right. makes it, no, no, she can't hang out in these tango ballrooms and live in a flop house with this man. Right. It, it, it's not sustainable. It's it's kind of an intense experience that it's, it's like going to a, a great concert or, you know, partying and getting really, you know, high or, or going on this awesome vacation. But it's not it's not life. It's just a, it's like a moment that's kind of exalted in its own terms. But that's that's as far as it goes. The, the, the experience comes back down to earth and then you got to figure out what to do next. There's also sort of, there's two elements to them, like alone in the apartment, right? There's a real, I mean, the thing I think that people really highlight is the sort of almost violent self-negating aspect Mm -hmm. of their sexual relationship. But in a lot of the scenes, they're also really childlike interacting with each other. And and it's sort of that rush of like initial romantic love in concentrated form here. But everybody has to learn that that's not life, you know? (laughs) Right. It's, it's, it's a rush. It's an experience. It's a moment. And, you know, you can, you can build a relationship where maybe those moments happen more frequently than they might if you were with somebody else or in a different circumstance, but it's not going to just be this perpetual 24, seven, 365 party, (laughs) you know, excitement or whatever, whatever it is that you maybe are, are seeking along that line. So yeah, you know, I've I've gone back and forth. I mean, there are there are times when I've I've viewed this as kind of like this kind of convoluted fantasy of Bertolucci and Brando, these kind of somewhat aging guys who've you know kind of had the run of it, but now they're kind of looking at their own mortality and wishing, boy, wouldn't it be nice to find some young, willing twenty-year-old who's willing to indulge me and and make me feel young again. Uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the negative take on all of this, but I think you know there is a there is a, a semblance of truth in that sometimes these types of relationships maybe not quite with the compactness that the movie presents, but but these things do happen in life. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility or plausibility that a situation like this might might occur between a couple people. Yeah, I also I mean I think. And this kind of might be a nice bridge to like Kale's review. Mm-hmm. I, sure. I, I, I do think this film is fairly critical of the kind of person that Brando is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, um, there is a one thing that does come in the early 70s with like, there is a focus on male characters, but there's a lot of films that are focused on the inadequacy of the, of the current model of, of maleness. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a strong component in this film. I mean, he is clearly incapable of dealing with his grief. It, it, it yeah. only manifests as anger when he's out in the normal world. Mm-hmm. If anything, the thing you could say about him in the room is that it manifests as something other than anger every once in a while. You know, and he's sort of, the first time he cries, I think, is in that room, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, he, he does sit and cry in the corner for a little bit. And I think reading most of the current reviews of the movie, like from the 70s, I think a lot of them are wrong about something. And one of the things I think they're wrong about is I don't think he expels his anger and grief in the room with her. He expels it 
in the scene where he sort of has a monologue to his wife's corpse. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Where he finally, you know, sort of settles on like, I don't know you. Right. <laughs> like what my, my grief here is partly, I don't understand who you ever were. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think it's notable that he doesn't return to the apartment after that scene. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like he sort of heals himself through sex with this woman. He heals himself a little bit outside of there. And hence his lack of, like, it was no, his need, having no more need to return there and now want to try mm-hmm. to be, have a normal relationship with her. So I, I do think the film is partially about how his kind of masculinity is not functional in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And if anything, it's, you know, part of the reason that she rejects him is that that's who he is. He's not going to be a fundamentally different person. He may have got over this trauma, but he's still sort of acting that way with her. And I think part of what turns her off is his flippant profanity and et cetera. You know, he, he's clearly a man in his late forties. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, this is like pre baby boomers, right? I mean, that would have put him born in what around, uh, what? 25 20 you know, late 20s which is probably when brando actually was born so there there really is a, a pretty significant generation gap um uh, despite maybe the erotic attraction that they initially felt they really are coming from two pretty different points of view and you know he's an american she's french so there's also that kind of cultural difference which again may be exciting at first but becomes very difficult to figure out you know how would this actually work over even a few months much yeah. less a, a lifetime you know so yeah so i think she has enough wits about her and and maybe he's you know blowing the smoke and fooling himself as far as living together and building something that's going to you know last but he certainly doesn't want to cut it off now i mean he has nothing else to turn to but i agree i think that the catharsis with his with his dead wife with with her corpse uh, in that room is a pretty pivotal moment yeah yeah so uh, do we want to shift the, the talk over to the pauline kale uh you know you, the, the the essay that really kind of i think in some ways really did launch this film at yeah. least in america to, to maybe a higher trajectory that it would than it would have accomplished simply on its own merits as a uh, a bold provocative art house film that kind of deals with some you know pretty pretty adult and heavy subject matter uh, in an aesthetically significant way uh, Pauline kale really did hype this film up in a way that created a sensation yeah so yeah Tell me about some of your thoughts about kind of her essay and uh, for, for listeners. I mean, the, the, the essay is, is very famous. Um, it's, it's provided in the show notes if you want to find the link. But uh, give me some of your thoughts on, on what Ms. Kale had to say. It's funny because I think like one of her sort of her role as a critic in this era, like where, why she's sort of important is she's, you know, not like the old style sort of Bosley Crowther critics who are all about sort of the literary virtues of films, but she's not sort of an intellectual theoretician like Andrew Serres. She's a very emotional Mm -hmm. critic. And and there's something wonderful about that. I think you see it in like people like Roger Ebert afterwards, that someone who is about fundamentally what they like and what they don't like and how exciting film can be. I think this review kind of, it would have been nice if she maybe gave it a little bit more thought because it is so <laughs> exciting. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. And it was just written like almost, you could almost imagine her running home or maybe the next morning, yeah. I think it was uh, October what 
14th. Yeah, in fact, it's right there in the first line. October 14th, 1972. The date should become a landmark in movie history. You know, it was published a couple of weeks later in the New Yorker magazine, but I, I would imagine it was written pretty much afterwards. It was a one night showing. It was the last night of the New York Film Festival, and it did not come back to America until the following winter of 73 so she goes full flush there were other reviews i think ebert reviewed it i think saris reviewed it i think the other kind of cream of the crop of the critical establishment all had their thing to say actually it's but, interesting yeah go ahead molly haskell reviewed oh, yeah. it for the mm-hmm. village voice saris reviewed it when it actually came out Okay, yeah. It's that's funny. Right. The beginning of his review is the biggest swipe at her I've ever seen in print. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. And yeah. both of those those are, are in the links as well. So I, yeah. I did really try to hunt those down and they're it's pretty hilarious because you're right, Kale was was Haskell's take pretty positive as well? Yes, it was. Yeah. 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 And and Saris, I think, knocked it down pretty brutally, right? Yes. Uh yeah, it's not really his kind of film, and <laughs> right. him, and, him yeah. and Kale are not. Uh, there's no love lost between those two, and I think he could not resist the opportunity to uh, to swipe at her. In it. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I I agree with what you say as far as the the emotional sort of upheaval of this film, and and Kale's she obviously was moved on on a very deep profound level psychologically sexually perhaps uh you know this really pushed her buttons and she gave it a a pretty rave review but it was not just like you know go see this movie i mean there the the first few paragraphs i think are kind of hyperbolic you know the movie breakthrough has finally come you know this is the most erotic film ever made you know just like and and so you know a, a reader is going to let that those words their imagination is going to fill that in with what they think is the most erotic imaginable film and this might not be the one (laughs) that comes to mind as far as fulfilling that particular fantasy or ideal of of what uh, a sexually stimulating film would be you know but but this obviously is one that got to her yeah she compares this to the debut of the rights of spring which is uh... (laughs) like yeah Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. What I find funny about it, and it's not just her review, it's almost every contemporary review Mm -hmm. is, I don't find this to be a particularly erotic film. I think it's an explicit film, but that's not the same thing by any stretch. Right. It's, it's emotionally searing. It's, it's incredibly bold. Again, I mean, Marlon Brando, he always was kind of a different kind of a cat, but still on a very conventional surface level, he's a, he's a big movie star. This is not the territory that big movie stars, you, you are not used to seeing them go there. I would, you know, even as much as we might think of Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, whoever you want to throw out there among George Clooney, you know, maybe there's younger actors. I don't know that I see any of them doing it the way Brando did. I, mm-hmm. This feels like a one of a kind singular moment in the annals of leading men, <laughs> you know, to, to, to take his, his reputation and his persona and put it into this role. Even though I think Ebert went on to say that he thinks Brando's kind of being more himself here than in any of the role he ever took on which is interesting. I did notice that this time. One of the things I noticed, I like maybe about middle of last year, I read a book that was partially a biography of Marlon Brando. 
Yeah. And some of the backstory he describes, the farm stuff and the, his mother, that's him, actually. Okay, yeah. So he, he's giving the character some of his own backstory. Sure. Um, which, and, of course, he casts doubt as to whether that's a real yeah. truth in the as the character in the film when he tells that little anecdote, milk and the cows and the cow shit on his boots and all that stuff. Yeah, but, but a lot of that is him. And I think he's really sort of putting himself very deeply into this part. I, he's a funny actor because he didn't have much respect for acting. Yeah. And often was lazy. Mm-hmm. Or would do something that interested him, even if it wasn't for the good of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, and 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 right, really kind of drove. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like something about this project really engaged him. Like he he's almost more on than he's been in like two decades on this film. You know, and and as was mentioned previously, this was his follow up to The Godfather, which yeah. was a you know that was a career resurrection. You know, some of the mixed baggage of you know Burn and what's that Joseph Losey film that he did? Mm-hmm. I think it was before this one. I can't remember the name right now, but you know, those are some characters that where he took it out on the you know pretty thin limb as well. And again, his his courage and his willingness to break rules is is, is pretty legendary. Yeah, but this one here really was quite a leap, and I don't know that he ever took on a role of this magnitude after that, that he was always sort of, you know, appearing as Marlon Brando in some kind of costume or makeup or whatever, you know. But, you know, there's another angle on this on this uh, Pauline Kael review that caught my attention, which was her comparison to the Norman Mailer films. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, I was just going to sit we're right in sync. I was just going to... Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. It's interesting because I think her take on this film in many ways matches what I think. And that I do think this is sort of a, you know, a deconstruction or, you know, a, a take down as some certain kind of masculinity. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know why she thinks that of the Norman Mailer films, <laughs> which is, which is, which is what I found really puzzling. It's like, She's got an interpretation of those Norman Mailer films that seems very unique to me. Well, you know, I think it, it, it is an interesting angle. She's she's kind of giving the Mailer films an unfavorable comparison. And it, like, let's like let's get real about anything you compare the Norman Mailer films. The Mailer films are going to be unfavorable <laughs> in comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, but I mean, he's yeah. he's a he's a big public figure, both an intellectual, a literary guy, but also a a big personality and a big macho man. I mean, he's he's yeah. the anti women's liber. There was that criterion a couple of years ago, Town Bloody Hall, where he's kind of facilitating this this big debate against uh, you know notable feminists and pretty cool little time capsule if you're really into the kind of where the culture wars were at back in the you know the 1970s there. So I think she's He's kind of viewing it through that way. And, and of course, Mailer with his brash and pretty self-absorbed approach thinking, I'm just going to go out there, you know, buy some film, get some cameras. I'm going to make great movies because I'm Norman Mailer and I can fucking do that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it. I mean, those films are to me fascinating and, and yeah. entertaining in kind of a perverse way, but they're not great cinema. <laughs> Perhaps with the exception of Wild 90, which if I never watch again, I will be happy. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah the, the, the other two have their virtues for sure mm-hmm. uh, um i just don't think that you know I, i'm not entirely against or really even majorly against norman mailer but i do not see what he's doing as a as a takedown attempt on a certain vision of masculinity 
Right, right. But I that, think that feels made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and maybe she just had uh, you know an axe to grind, or maybe she just took take, taking two barrel chested men and kind of putting them alongside each other to to yeah. to make a pointer for her argument. Yeah. yeah, it is kind of fascinating why she dragged that into the conversation, but it is an interesting element at least. Yeah, it it did make me seek out today. She re- references his appearance on the Dick Cavett show with Gar- Garvey yeah. So yeah. I, I found that on YouTube today and watched it. And that, oh. That is worth watching. Okay, that, yeah. Uh, I'll look that up and I'll try to put that in the show notes just as a little kind of extra frosting yeah. on top here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got some, it has some hilarious moments and Mailer does not, she's right, Mailer does not come off too well in that. <laughs> sure. But, but you know, in a certain sense, I, I respect the guy because he yeah. just, he he's so, so willing to go for broke. I mean, so many of today's celebrities or, you know, cultural figures, you know, much more stage managed, much more cautious. Mailer, to his credit, let it all hang out there, you know. Just a slight preview. There's a moment in this where he actually turns to the audience and says he has a question for them. And the question is, are you all idiots or is it just me? <laughs> Yeah, now that that's kind of just you know major league heckling right back, yeah. you know, just just yeah. that's great. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and kind of wrap up our comments on the yeah. film. Uh, now you watched it on Blu-ray, right? I yes. saw your. So what what is the Blu-ray? Because this is I'm watching. I watched it on Tubi, yeah. <laughs> the, the free streaming channel, which is kind of crazy because you get interrupted with toilet paper and cat food yeah. commercials and all this kind of nonsense right and sometimes the the breaks are like unbelievable like you're gonna cut right there <laughs> anyways but yeah tell me about the blu-ray i'm kind of interested of of getting a quality version of this film on disc if there is one out there it is but it's a completely non it's completely no features blu-ray it's from fox themselves so yeah. it's a very nice print of the film i mean i would say it looks beautiful it's just there's not a single extra yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's that's a shame because I mean this this film seems to me like it would benefit from a very good rounded out supplements type of edition. You know, I've already talked with with Josh at the end of the last segment. Would Criterion ever touch this? And it it feels like Criterion just has no interest in in tangling with this film with their current fan base and and with the, the almost like the hostility that I think it would generate among a lot of um, younger viewers or people who just kind of know it in the light of the post kind of me too era and all of that you want to talk just a little bit about that aspect of the film i I think this story is has some gray edges to it because i don't know i'll put it this way i think the way it's portrayed is a little inaccurate it's not that i i think it's a it's an experience that 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 what happened on the set should be should happen Mm -hmm. but i i think the reputation that the film has gained is sort of a little blown out of proportion i think it's uh it's it's a bad thing to have happened. And I think it's a bad kind of bad thing that happens when making this kind of film where it's very difficult to do explicit material like this without somebody not being treated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Almost every film that you, I could think of that's sort of, that has material that's explicit in it, somebody does not come out of it happy. Right. It's, it's a pretty intense experience and yeah. there's really not no way of getting yeah. around it. But, yeah. And, yeah. And I, and I appreciate, you know, none of us are trying to justify that or downplay it or excuse it. And I've already said, if, if people are just turned off by the subject matter, by the, you know, the kind of 
hindsight accounts, I'm not going to judge or criticize. You know, I, I, no. I'm sure you're in the same territory there. Yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not pleasant material, right? Like right. some of the some of the moments in it are, especially the one that's in question, is very difficult to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's it's that's one where I just kind of even on the rewatch, just kind of let it go and not to dwell on it too much. It's, it's a, it's a harrowing scene uh, and it's meant to be. I think the, the best chance for this getting a release right now would probably be someone like Kino doing a a Blu-ray. And they're probably likely maybe to do a commentary track, you know, maybe there'll be a pamphlet or booklet. You know, I, I I get a fair number of Kino discs to review and I kind of keep an eye on them and they do a nice job. And I, I, have nothing but love for Kino Lorber and you know all of all of the, the incredible range of films, but you know it, it, you know Criterion did release it on Laserdisc back in I think the early '90s. A different time for that company, a different time for cinema and and movie fan base and and film culture, all of that. Um, but I, I do feel like this is this still is one of the more memorable and and uh, groundbreaking films of its era and. Um, you know, as I had said in the beginning of this episode, I just recently came to watch this film, even though I know I've known its reputation and I've known some of the specific scenes and things that have happened for for a long, long time. In some ways, I I think the film surpassed what I was expecting, not in terms of the graphic or the brutality or the emotional intensity of it, but just the the complexity and and the the nuance of of the storytelling. And the and the characters. The more I've kind of considered the situation and, and thought through how this film came together, you know, the more fascinating it's become to me, and the more significant it seems as a as a work of art. That it has it has some flaws, it has some blind spots, it has it is a product of its time. It is a as a film that I think uh, packs a lot of punch, and I think should be remembered and viewed and considered for. As the next five decades, uh, as, as long as people are engaging with this medium as a, as a serious art form. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts you have before we wrap it up then? The only thing when I was, I realized when I was talking about all of the things that I think sort of make this a complete package, I should have mm-hmm. mentioned, I think the, the Francis Bacon paintings. Oh, yeah, yeah. Used in the opening are extremely evocative of the film in a way yeah. almost difficult to describe exactly why but it's a it's a brilliant choice mm-hmm. yeah yeah that is that's a again and this is where i think and i i imagine there probably have been books written about this film a lot of reviews i mean i i i tried to get a pretty good sampling of the range of pro and con reviews uh there's a lot more out there and like i say i'm sure many of you know monographs and book length essays biographies of Bertolucci, of Brando, even, even uh, you know, well-written essays talking about Maria Schneider and the effect, effect that this film had on her career for better and for worse and her own story and, and all of that. So yeah, uh, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty rich piece of work here and one that I've really enjoyed talking with you about and with uh, Stephanie and Josh as well. Listeners, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this journey. Uh, I, I definitely recommend watch this film unless you know if you're of a more sensitive temperament and again i don't say that condescendingly this is not a film for everybody but it is one that i'm glad i watched finally got uh, to kind of understand what all the hype was about all right so our next episode is going to be 
Uh, Reiner Werner Fassbender's Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. This is a, another pretty big film, nothing that quite made the uh, same cultural splash that Last Tango did, but it's a big film in that it's like eight hours long, uh, a TV series that Fassbender did. Uh, a Family Drama is the subtitle, and so I'm really looking forward to getting into that. I've already watched the first two episodes. Richard, I think you're part of the the, the crew on that one, and so I've got a number of guests uh, who have expressed interest. So we'll figure out a way to cover this massive uh, uh, hulk of a film. Uh, really enjoyable characters that I've seen in those first two segments. i got to get through the rest of it. But we'll have a good conversation about that uh, in due time. All right? So that's wrapping up this episode. Let me know your thoughts. If you've got any takes on Last Tango that uh, maybe you want to throw into the mix, find me on social media, and uh, we'll hope to hear from you and let, you, let us know what you think about this uh Always controversial, but uh, pretty, pretty fascinating film. So that's my episode. Uh, thanks again, Richard. It's been a good time talking to you. We'll, we'll be with y'all soon. Bye bye. Yeah.